you're listening to Hear This Idea, a podcast showcasing new thinking in philosophy, the social sciences, and effective altruism. In this episode, we talked to Keith Frankish. He is a philosopher of mind and an honorary reader at the University of Sheffield, a visiting research fellow with the Open University, and an adjunct professor at the University of Crete. Uh, You'll also notice on this episode that Luca has been replaced by our first ever guest interviewer, Rob Long. Uh, Rob is a research fellow here at the Future of Humanity Institute, and he was able to bring some philosophy of mind knowledge to the conversation, which was extremely useful. Incidentally, we're thinking about trying out this format more often, with one of us swapping out for a guest interview. So let us know if you thought this one went well. Now, Keith is especially well known for really introducing and defending a view about consciousness called illusionism. So here's me trying to explain the idea. It might feel like there is something it is like to be you right now, hearing my voice, seeing whatever you're seeing, and specifically, in addition to the way you're reacting psychologically to what I'm saying and what you're seeing, and alongside all of this, you know, information processing, you might think there is a kind of extra raw experience. There are some extra distinctive sensory qualities. And these experiences might seem in some sense intrinsic, or private to you, kind of ineffable maybe. Uh, You might even think that they're not physical, right? Really hard to imagine how they could be reducible to, you know, a bunch of neurons firing in your head or whatever. Uh, And this kind of raw experience is what philosophers sometimes call phenomenal consciousness. Now, illusionism says that this kind of raw, private, sensory experience is just not real. In other words, you are not in fact phenomenally conscious at all. And the strong impression that you might have that you are in fact conscious is a kind of trick or a fiction which your brain kind of plays on itself or tells to itself or something. Keith does a much better job of explaining this view at length in the podcast, so stick around if this sounds unclear. One reason I really wanted to speak to Keith was to ask him about the ethical implications of illusionism. Because it's very natural to link together questions about ethics, that is, what we should do, uh, with questions about consciousness. For instance, it seems like some mental states are kind of intrinsically good or bad, and in some sense this could be a guide for what outcomes we should try to avoid or reach, and you know, which kinds of creatures we should care for. Uh, And then that might motivate you to try figuring out which non-human animals are conscious, uh, or you might even start wondering about which kinds of AI might eventually be conscious. But Keith basically denies that there are intrinsically good or bad mental states at all. And so I think he nuances and complicates this picture in all sorts of just really compelling and interesting ways. So thanks very much to Rob for joining me on this one. And without further ado, here is Keith Frankish. My name's Keith Frankish. Um, I'm a philosopher. I worked for a long time at the Open University in, in, the, in the UK writing course material. I still have affiliations with the uh, various universities in the UK, and I do some teaching here at the University of Crete, but I spend most of my time uh, writing these days. I write mostly about consciousness. Um, I think consciousness consciousness is a subject that fascinates people. It's a subject that we all feel quite deeply about, I think. It's, it's very intimate. Our consciousness is what we really are, in a way. Uh, but I think we, we're often quite confused about it. And uh, I'm trying to think more clearly about it myself. 
and trying to help other people to think more clearly about it. And I suppose as a way to get more of a taste of what exactly you're currently preoccupied with, could you maybe tell us about some kind of problem or question that you're currently stuck on? I'm stuck on two questions. One is the substantive question, which is thinking about what consciousness is uh, and why we think about it in the way that we do. I just said that I think we're confused about consciousness. I think we misconceptualize our own consciousness. And I think that itself is a very interesting fact about us, that we tend to think of consciousness in this particular way. There's a kind of compelling picture of what consciousness is that we can't seem to detach ourselves from. And I think it's wrong. I think there's very good reasons for thinking this picture is wrong and that it's actively misleading us and hindering our progress in all sorts of ways. But it's very hard to detach ourselves from that picture. And so one thing that really interests me is why we have this picture, if I'm right, that it's wrong. And uh, what that itself tells us about consciousness, that it's something that presents itself to us in this in this way. I'm also struggling with, with a, a practical question, because as I said, I, I, I'm increasingly writing for a, trying to write for a wider audience. And I'm facing this problem of how to how to communicate uh, about this. What I'm asking people to do in my my work on consciousness is to rethink the nature of their own consciousness. And how do you get people to do that? It's not easy. It's not easy for me to hold this reconceptualized picture in mind. And it's hard to get it across to other people. I'm asking people to make a kind of uh, Daniel Dennett might call it an inversion or a sort of aspect shift in the way they think about consciousness. And mm. It's hard to get them to, to do that. And um, now this is my problem, not their problem. Um, and this is something that, that that's an ongoing thing. I think you can see it in, in, in Dennett's work that he's continually tried to develop new, um, new thought experiments, new analogies, new metaphors, new ways of trying to get people to see it what he considers the right way. And, and I'm see myself as continuing to do that. I really like what you said on the second point, which is that philosophers are fond of dealing in arguments. But if the question is, how do I change someone's mind to come around to a view which I think is right, does feel like the most effective way involves not so much leading them through arguments, but also presenting really interesting kind of new perspectives, analogies, thought experiments, little empirical examples, uh, new angles or something. And I wonder if that is underrated in philosophical discourse, at least kind of public facing discourse. But I'm sure in some sense, you know, this conversation could be something like a test of that. And I suppose the real question has to do with the first problem you're stuck on, which is something like, well, people tend to hold a view of consciousness which you think is mistaken. And before we talk about that view, I guess we can talk about this big question that kind of motivates lots of different views about consciousness. This is often called the hard problem of consciousness. Now, whether or not you ultimately think this is a kind of good question to be asking, I would be keen to hear how you understand this question and just a little bit about how people begin to approach it. It's very easy to say what the hard problem is. It's the problem of how the brain generates, produces consciousness. Okay. How does it do it? 
now, but everything is packed into the question of what you mean by consciousness. Okay. Um, and now, standardly what happens here when you're introducing this problem to students or to people who are interested in, in philosophy of mind is you start talking about what it's like to have experiences. Uh, you say, well, consciousness is what it's like to have visual experiences, auditory experiences. It's what it's like to see a brilliant blue sky, to taste uh, coffee, to hear uh, a violin playing or something or whatever. And you can be aware of these examples. And similarly with bodily sensations, what it's like to feel a pain in your toe or whatever. But, but very quickly, you have to you have to start um, clarifying things a bit here, because it seems that what you're saying is that it's what colours and sounds and tastes and things are like. And at first sight, colours and sounds don't seem to be mental things at all. They seem to be things in the world around us. Colours are features of objects on the basis of which we group some things together and distinguish things from each other there. So what is this, what it is likeness of the color? If the color's out there, what is it? And so you have to start making a distinction between the colors of things out there in the world, which is whatever it is, whatever it is we're, we're picking up on when we, when we categorize things in this way. And then the mental color, what it's like to experience the color, which seems to be another property. So there's the, the color out there, whatever it is that some feature of the surface of an object that's reflecting light of certain wavelengths. And then that's sort of producing a kind of color in our minds, which is often referred to as the, the quali of the, the color in question, the quali of yellow, the quali of red or whatever. Similarly, with pain, pain seems to be something that occurs in our bodies. The pain is in my toe, and there's certainly some damage in my toe and some kind of stimulation there. But then it produces this pain quali, it seems, in my mind, which is what it's like to experience that pain. And this sort of line of thinking, this separation between the sort of the qualities in the world and the qualities that we experience, this is, it's easy to sort of reinforce this by thinking about cases where you hallucinate or dream, whatever, where it seems all the mental qualities are there, but the appropriate worldly ones aren't. And it can seem that really it's these mental qualities, these mental colors and sounds and things that are all that we really know for sure. And now it looks like you really have got yourself with this way of starting to think about consciousness as this interior world. Once you've talked yourself into this way of thinking about it, which isn't hard to do, then you really seem to be stuck with a big problem because this, this interior world seems to be radically private as no one else can get access to it. I mean, you can tell them about it, but even then you're limited in what you can how you can describe it. You can say, well, it's, you know, I, I'm having that experience that I have when I see yellow things, the, you know, the experience that bananas produce. And how does the other person know that the experience bananas produce in them is the same as the one that it produces in you? They can't get into your private little mental world and have a look at these mental your mental qualities and you can't get into theirs. Moreover, investigating your brain, neuroscience doesn't seem to help at all because that Neuroscience just doesn't show up, this private world of mental qualities. It just shows neurons doing all sorts of wonderful things. So now you have this idea of, so how does the public brain, this massively complex 
biological organ of 80, is it 80 billion interconnected neurons? I'm not sure the number. 86 or so? Is it 86? <laughs> I can't And with how, well, with how many interconnections? Oh, um, innumerable. How does that produce this private world of mental qualities? That's the hard problem. And I think once you set it up in this way, I mean, I've, I've, I've done a little bit to set it up there, but you can do a lot more. Once you set it up in that way, I think you're presented with not merely a hard problem, but an impossible problem. So there's this paper called The Meta Problem of Consciousness by David Chalmers, and you have written a response to this. And something that's at issue in this conversation you have with Chalmers is how much is baked into our, our concept of consciousness? So I think he would say, and uh, Eric Schwitzgable says things like this, whether consciousness is private, as you've been saying, or infallible, those are like substantive uh, things we can say about consciousness, and those do make things very tricky. But what do you think of people who say there's actually just a, a more innocent conception of consciousness? That's, that's uh, Schwitzgable's term. Um, we don't have to think that it's necessarily private or infallible. We can still pick out this thing that we can wonder about. And it's this thing that, that visual experience has and mental imagery has, but that hormone release doesn't have, or, you know, certain low level things in muscle control or the regulation of heartbeat. You can wonder what the difference between those things is just that they're namely that there's something it's like to be. Uh, in the first and not the second. Yeah, what, what do you think about this more more innocent approach? I was, I was with you till the, till the last, um, till you sneaked in what it's like there. Um, no, I, I think there is an innocent notion of consciousness. I'm very happy with it. Uh, it just doesn't pose a hard problem. Let's just point to some examples of conscious experiences. There's a light above me now. I'm looking at it. It's a sort of yellowy white. It's quite bright. It's flickering a little bit. I'm having a conscious experience. Okay. And then we could point to other things that are happening in me, perhaps things that my brain is doing that, that, that are not um, that very like that at all. Yeah, here's a bunch of, of, of events that occur in me that we group together because they have some kind of common features. For one thing, I can tell you about them. That's one obvious thing. When I'm having a conscious experience, I generally I'm able to describe it. Yeah, those things happen and they need explaining. But we've not got anything in that conception that presents a hard problem. There's no reason to think that whatever it is that we're talking about there isn't just some sort of complex set of functional processes in the brain. Now, consciousness as something that poses a hard problem is supposed to be something that resists conceptualization in functional terms. And it resists it because, well, you start waving your hands here and saying, well, it's just kind of purely qualitative. It's just a feel. It's a pure feel. It's not a matter of something happening, some process occurring like digestion, which we can conceptualize fully in, in functional terms. It's just a pure feel. And we could imagine all those feel. We get into all these thought experiments, which are supposed to, um, to reveal something about consciousness, but I think just reveal or just reinforce a certain conception of consciousness. I was wondering if I could try saying back the way you've been describing this conception of consciousness. So, as you've said, it does seem to most people, certainly to me, that among other things, my conscious experience is kind of private in the way that no amount of peering around my brain or me talking to other people can really communicate what it's like for me to be like tasting this coffee or seeing this color. It's also similarly kind of ineffable. Uh, for instance, if I were trying to tell a blind person what it's like to see the color red, 
I think it wouldn't only be difficult. I feel like it also would just be impossible. Maybe red looks like the way a trumpet sounds or something, but I was not even getting close. And then finally, it really feels like this thing, consciousness, is, is in some significant way disconnected from the physical world or processes in that world, right? So I could imagine like blowing up my brain so I can walk through the neurons and, you know, no matter what I look at, I won't see anything that I recognize as consciousness. I could also imagine duplicating a brain in some other possible world and there being no kind of attendant experience, right? Just the people walk around, but the lights aren't on or something. And all those thoughts kind of lead you to thinking that there's this question to be answered about how and why it is that on one hand we have physical processes and on the other hand we have the taste of coffee and the appearance of red. And you're saying, okay, I can see why people think this is a question, um, but I don't only think it's a hard question. I think it might be an impossible question. Yeah, absolutely. That, that's exactly the conception of consciousness that, that's at the root of this. And yes, uh, philosophers might, um, might say, well, I don't want to endorse all of those things, or I, you know, I want, maybe I want to have a watered down notion. But that's the notion that's causing the problem. That's the notion, this private mental world that is, that is known to you in some very special way and is not accessible to other people or to scientific investigation. That's the notion that's causing the problem. That's why we think there's a hard problem. So, so long as you think there's a hard problem, you're endorsing at least sub substantial bits of that conception, yes. And I think it's the, probably the privacy that's at the root of it. The idea that this, this world isn't really, this yeah. mental world isn't really part of the public three-dimensional world that can be investigated by science. And of course, if you think of it in that way, then there's a hard problem because how on earth does science get, well, science can't get hold of it. The most you can do is, is tell some story about how these private world is related to the world that science describes. Mm -hmm. So my, my challenge really is to, that, is to that way of thinking. It's saying, no, I agree completely that that's how we tend to conceptualize our own, our own minds. Um, I feel the the pull of that picture, I think, as strongly as as anyone. Um, but as Daniel Dennett would say, I don't trust it. I think my mind might be tricking myself about itself, as it were. And at the very least, we ought to consider this as a possibility. Um, because if the intuitions we have about this private mental world are right, then we are really very, very special bits of the universe. <laughs> Uh, that somehow create these these private worlds. I liked the phrase, maybe our minds are tricking ourselves about themselves or something along those lines. Or our brains tricking ourselves about our brains might be better. Yeah. Um, you are pointing at a kind of alternative conception of consciousness, which gets called illusionism about consciousness. Mm -hmm. um, we'll kind of, I guess, go into this slowly and maybe from different angles because i happen to think it's just a very very weird idea or at least i find it very very hard to wrap my head around um but maybe as a kind of first blush could you tell us what illusionism is supposed to be saying and what it's answering exactly as well well it's saying uh, that this conception of consciousness is, is first of all seriously mistaken uh that these world of private mental colors and qualities and so on doesn't actually exist um something exists that is causing our beliefs about this private mental world that is, makes it 
seemed to us in some sense that there was this mental world. And our talk about this mental world is certainly tracking things that are, are really happening. It's not that when we say, you know, I'm having this experience, that nothing's happening, something's happening. But the way we conceptualize it is wrong. Our way of conceptualizing experiences involving this private, especially intimate acquaintance with peculiar uh, non-physical properties, that's the wrong way of, of, of thinking about it. Though it's a natural way and a way that is perhaps useful for t talking about what's happening with us and communicating with other people. Uh, I'm not suggesting we, we give it up. I mean, another way of putting this, I suppose, is that um, introspection, the process of attending to our own to our own mental states, to what's happening in our minds, is not reliable. This is something that in, in other areas, certainly in thinking about, say, the uh, belief and desire and emotions. So this is widely accepted that we're often uh, we often deceive ourselves about uh, what we really think and believe and mm -hmm. want. And, uh, but it seems we surely we can't be deceiving ourselves about what we're actually experiencing right now. <laughs> uh, but I think we can. We can certainly misconceptualize what's happening. I mean, another possible word for the position would be something like fictionalism, the idea that we are using a kind of fictional language, the language of this, this private mental world is a, is a sort of fictional place with these fictional things, these, mm -hmm. these things quietly are occurring there and some sort of fictional self appreciating them. And Daniel Dennett likes to characterize this, this common sense idea, this wrong idea, as a sort of internal private theater where there's a self watching this display of um, of, color, of, of mental colors and, and listening to mental, uh, a mental soundtrack, as it were. And this is, this is quite a compelling picture, which I think even those who would say, well, of course, I don't believe anything like that, that this kind of picture still is there somehow in the background, shaping the things that they do believe. I am interested to try drawing out just how possibly radical or weird or counter to common sense, this view might sound to some people. And one way to do that is to explain how this is different from what gets called physicalism or materialism, or at least certain kinds of those views about consciousness. So lots of people, you know, lots of people I know will think, oh, I don't think that consciousness is something kind of mysterious or magical or non-physical. I have this kind of private mental world. I see colors, sure. And I just happen to think that that world is identical with or caused by my brain. You know, I, I, I'm a scientist. I, in what ways is that kind of view different from the view you're expressing? I think, I think my view is much more commonsensical than the physicalist one. Right. Okay. So first right. of all, let's distinguish physicalism from another view that is often confused with physicalism. Uh, the view that's often confused with physicalism is the view that the brain somehow produces consciousness. Okay, that the stuff that's happening in the brain somehow creates these mental properties, these mental qualia, these mental colors and sounds and so on. That it's, the consciousness is a product of the brain. That's not physicalism. That's a sort of property dualism because there's two sorts of properties. There's the brain properties and then there are these mental properties that are produced by the brain. That's a form of, a weak form of dualism. Physicalism is the view that Consciousness and these mental properties and so on just are states of the brain. So the feel of seeing uh, a bright blue sky, the, the, the feel of a sharp pain in your toe just is certain ac activity in certain regions 
of your sensory co cortex. It's just certain patterns of brain firing. That is the mental color. That is the pain, right? That's physicalism. Now, that seems to me, I cannot make sense of that view. I mean, the physicalist is these two things are the same. That I look at the vivid, brilliant blue sky above me, and that mm -hmm. what I'm actually attending to when I attend to the blueness of the blue is actually some pattern of neuron firing in my brain. That's what it is. Uh, well, it, it certainly doesn't look like it from the perspective of the neuroscientist investigating my brain. They, it doesn't look blue to them. Uh, I can't make sense of that identity. I can imagine drawing an, an analogy to other things. So I am looking at what looks like a tiny Rob and a tiny Keith. But in fact, I know it's just some array of pixels. And because I'm, you know, scientifically responsible, I'm a kind of pixelist about these images of people. And I've, I've explained the way the problem of how it is that a tiny Rob and a tiny Keith appear to like be beaming in in front of me. Is that not the same kind of thing that physicalists are? Not really. It's an illusion. You're not actually looking at me. You're looking mm -hmm. at the pixels on a screen. That's yeah. more of an illusionist position. You're not actually seeing, you know, those pixels aren't me. <laughs> this mm -hmm. is not a Keith. <laughs> yeah. um, this is a picture of a Keith that you're looking at. So you've not really mistaken me for the pixels. That would be an astonishing uh, category <laughs> error. And similarly, I think it I think claim the physicalist claim would be that I am the pixels, you know, that I'm like sort of Max Headroom character. That's, that's an old reference, probably too old for you. That I am just a, a, a two-dimensional uh, 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 digital being. That's the analogy. Um, so it, to me, um, illusionism is just clear-headed physicalism. And if you look back to the to the identity theorists of the 50s, the original identity theorists, people like Ulin Place and Jack Smart, they were pretty clear about this. Uh, Place talks about the phenomenological fallacy, the idea that you know this this this, this mental greenness it, 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 that there, there is such a thing as this. You know, when you're looking mm -hmm. at something green, that there is a mental greenness. No, there's just whatever happens when you normally see green things that's occurring. Mm -hmm. You're not aware of some mental version of greenness. You're just in the state that you're normally in when you see that mm -hmm. you're in, normally when you see green, whatever that happens to be, and that's for the neuroscientist to tell us what that is. But it's not then to say that state really is greenness. Mm -hmm. So this is I, I, said, I said this is just clear-eyed physical. And I think we've been going on a on a sort of detour, uh, physicalists are going on a detour for the last thirty or forty years on this. I see trying to have their cake and eat it, trying to take these hard problem intuitions seriously and discharge, you know, and, and, and respond in physical. I, I don't think you can do that. Yeah, interestingly, it, it, it strikes me that this reaction you have to physicalism of how could I possibly make sense of that identity? How could this really um, explain greenness? That's something you share with non-physicalists. Uh, both, both you and non-physicalists think that physicalism is just completely impossible to understand or to to find satisfying yeah there's a certain conception of consciousness yes i agree and if you if, if you conceive of consciousness that way when yes you are making uh, physicalism uh fairly inconceivable 
but that's because of the way you've set it up. The trick is that this conception is 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 introduced as being a really innocent one. It's you know, it's if you have to ask, you ain't never going to get to know, and it's just the obvious thing. It's, it's what it's likeness, but it's actually built on the back of a whole tradition of of philosophical thought about this, particularly the skeptical thought, and. I don't, I'm not sure it's as natural as we... I, I think you can get yourself in a frame of mind where it seems inc- very natural and compelling and hard to get rid of. Um, but surely the, the natural conception, the, the, just the sort of completely pre-theoretical conception, is that all these qualities that are supposedly produced by my brain are just out there in the world. Mm-hmm. That's, the pre, that's the pre-theoretical. It's only when you get, you know, uh, to get early modern science and you get the idea that the world out there doesn't have these qualities in it that you start having uh, you start having a problem of consciousness. You have to put them in the mind. Okay, um, let's take a little leader. There, I guess, sort of, I was in science, just saw all these qualities, all this stuff is just out there in the world. This is incredibly sketchy history. Then you get modern, uh, early modern science, where the, the idea is you try and sort of mathematicize the world. That's a point that Philip Goff makes, makes a lot of, and tries to describe um, the natural world in terms of the structure and dynamics of matter. And... Uh, so then what happens to the qualities? What happens to the redness and the, and the painfulness and all this stuff uh, and the sweetness and all these things? Well, you have to say, well, you could say, uh, oh, they're, they're in us. They're in our souls. And people tended to believe in souls at that time. They thought souls were not part of the physical world. And so it was a convenient place to put this stuff. So you say, okay, there's this physical world doing all, you know, mechanic, doing all its stuff mechanically. And then there are souls which are filled with all these, these interesting qualities and stuff, and well, which is also the locus of free will and intellectual thinking and all these fancy stuff that you can't really explain in mechanical terms. Well, that's fair enough until you start, uh, science starts to get rid of the soul itself and tells you that what you thought was a soul really is just a brain. And then, then you have difficulties because you put all this tricky stuff in there. Now you want to just be a mind-brain identity theorist. So how do you, what, what then do you do with this stuff? And the physicalists are trying to say, well, yeah, it's still kind of in there somehow. <laughs> you know, it's still, but it's now in the brain. You, you have to be, you have to be more, a bit more radical, I think. Yeah. Um, one of the objections to this kind of illusionist view about consciousness, which occurs to lots of people when they hear about it for the first time, is, well, hang on, um, for there to be an illusion doesn't that presuppose that it's an illusion for some kind of conscious observer or conscious experiencer? And I mean conscious in the kind of problem-generating sense. So certainly this seems to be the case for, you know, visual illusion. Um, if I'm experiencing some kind of illusory colour where there's actually no real colour there, but just some, like, dots which make it look like it's there, um, I, the experiencer, need to be there in the first place in order to be mistaken about what colour I'm seeing, right? So it looks like... Worst case, this illusionism thing is just kind of presupposing the thing it's attempting to explain away. And very best case, it's just kind of knocking the problem back one step, right? Because I just ask you, well, maybe the fact that I'm conscious is kind of an illusion, but it's an illusion for who? And so I suppose the question is something like, how can it be the case that I'm conscious in this problematic sense? How can that feeling be be itself an illusion? Okay, so that's a natural objection. And uh... I can see its force, but I think it's presupposing that the view of the sort of view of consciousness that I'm asking people to reject, that the illusionist asks you to reject. And uh, the reason is this: that you're thinking of the of an illusion, like say a perceptual illusion, as 
something that's experienced in this private mental world. So there isn't really, say, a, let's suppose it's a, it's a hallucination, let's say. So there isn't really a kind of pink elephant <laughs> there in front of you, but there is a sort of pink elephant uh, uh, image in your private mental world. And your experience is constituted by what's happening in this, in this private mental world, not by what's actually out there in, in the real world. Or take an illusion where you have a Muller-Lyer illusion, where you have two lines, one of which appears longer than the other. Uh, that one's not really longer than the other, but the, the 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 version of those lines that's presented in your little mental world, one of the lines is longer than the other. So you're understanding illusions in terms of presentations in some private mental world. But if you think of illusions in that way, then the illusionist view of consciousness itself seems to be uh, to have all the problems that you mentioned, because it seems that we're that the illusionist is saying, "Oh, look, this private mental world that you seem to have is itself an illusion." So that, if you extend the same picture, seems to mean that you're going to have to have another private mental world in which there's a version of this private mental world being displayed. So there isn't really this private mental world any more than there's a pink elephant out there, but there is a kind of version of it being displayed in another mental world. So you're going to need a mental world after all, in, in which to present the illusion of the first one. Well, the thing is, the illusionist says, don't think of illusions in that way at all. So don't think of perceptual illusions in that way as involving some presentation of mental um, shapes and colors and so on in a mental world. Think of them as producing a set of reactions in you, in particular, beliefs. So one thing that the illusion of a pink elephant produces is the belief that there's a pink elephant there. So think of an illusion as something that produces all the psychological reactions typically produced by the real thing. Well, the real thing isn't there. And now we can tell the story about this in a world of this in a private mental world. We can say that for there to be an illusion of a private mental world is for you to have all the reactions, all the reactions uh, to be produced that would be produced by a real me private mental world. So, for instance, you believe that there's a private mental world. You talk about this private mental world. You you perhaps obsess about how to explain this private mental world. You have a lot of all the psychological reactions that would be produced by a private mental world with, with uh, mental qualities and so on. And the thing that's experiencing the illusion is just you, the whole person, just as you, the whole person, are having the reactions that are characteristic of, of seeing a pink elephant, so you, the whole person, having the reactions characteristic of having a private mental world in your head. Uh, so you don't need to have this second sort of presentation. There's no threat of a regress, and there's no need for some sort of inner person to witness this private mental world. So in order to get over the objection, you need to rethink what an illusion is. Now, that's a little bit of a... An, awkward thing for the, the illusionist because it looks as if you know we're using a term that you already understand and so you know illusionism says it's consciousness is a kind of illusion but you need to rethink what an illusion is in order to understand it uh, so that's a little bit of a defect in the name um but it is maybe an opportunity to explain the um uh, the point better very quick question if you could go back what are your top three alternative names for illusionism you already mentioned fictionalism any other backup names that you would that you would like? Well, look, you could just call it irrealism. Um, I kind of didn't like that because it seemed to be sort of uh, um, just dismissing it. It's saying it's not real. Forget about it. Now, isn't that the question, the, the, now, illusion, on the other hand, suggests something that an illusion is a real psychological state. 
And illusions can be quite powerful. I know wars have been started over illusions, I guess. And religions uh, uh, started over illusions, using illusion quite broadly here. Illusions can be a part, I mean, the way fiction is drama, TV is an illusion. Uh, but it's a very powerful one that moves us and is quite important. Stage uh, magic illusions, they're important, potent, powerful things that can move us and amuse us. And, and so I, 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 I like the idea of illusion because it had a positive content for me. It wasn't just dismissing this. It was saying it's not what you think it is, but it's still quite important. Uh, so that's one reason I, I didn't like irrealism. I didn't like eliminativism either, because I don't think we should say eliminate talk of uh, the, what experiences are like. We just need to understand uh, uh, what it's really doing, what its function is. So I didn't like eliminativism. Uh, fictionalism is probably the second um, second best one, fictionalism. Um, why, the reason I don't like fictionalism is because fictions are typically intentionally created. You know, you, you make up a fiction. I'm certainly not making up uh, this account of what my inner life is like intentionally. You know, it's being made up for me. So it'd be a fiction created by my by some personal processes in my brain. Whereas if I called it fictionalism, people would say, oh, you're saying that you're just making all this up. You're calling me a liar? <laughs> When I say that, I see red. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Now, illusions, on the other hand, are typically not uh, deliberately created in that way. So, so that was that was a point in its favour. I thought one's trying something to do with magic, but then because I really like the analogy with stage magic, because stage magic is all about creating a certain effect on the audience, and I was particularly influenced um, around that time by um, Nick Humphrey's work. He really is an illusionist, though he doesn't like the term, um, but. Um, he used this comparison with magic a lot, and his uh, his view then, and it's, it's not really changed anything, was that this is actually an adaptive feature, this illusion of this private mental world that evolution selected for, because it has all sorts of wonderful beneficial effects. And so it's, it's a bit like evolution as a sort of magician crafting this illusion, carefully crafting this illusion to have a certain effect on, on us, <laughs> on, on, on the audience. And I Another reason why I liked this idea of magic and illusion is because there's a, there's a nice analogy um, with with consciousness, which is this: which when you know how the trick's done, it's always disappointing. It's always kind of mundane. It's just like it, 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 the, the wonder you feel from from at seeing the effect is completely uh, sort of disproportionate to the um, uh, to, to 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 the actual apparatus that's used it's often sort of trivial and inadequate to produce that that effect and that's a lovely analogy for i think thinking about the relation between the brain and consciousness you think you know how could just neurons firing produce our sense of this well, you know how could just sleight of hand movers maneuvers make it seem that this wonderful thing is happening people often say to me you know illusionism isn't 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 you know an ideal name well tell me a better one Naming it, I think, is important, though, right? Because often the success of some some idea is attached to how catchy <laughs> the name is. Um, I think it has worked in that in that in that respect. Um, and another reason I chose it, I liked it, is because it is deliberately provocative. And I think that is important because you really do need to, to do a bit of work to reconceptualize consciousness in this way. Uh, I think this is where physicalists have been sort of selling us short they say ah oh, you know it's all, all it is is all you're really introspecting here is uh, the patterns of neural activity what do you think explains why it seems like children naturally wonder 
if people see red the same way they see red. Uh, at least I've, I've heard this reported. I seem to remember that I myself had this, and I don't think I had at that time much of a theoretical conception of you know primary qualities and secondary qualities. And this goes back to the topic that you're talking about at the beginning, which is what you know explains why we make these judgments. Uh, how much of it is maybe kind of baked in, such that children would naturally come to it, and how much of it comes from theorizing and things that we tell freshmen taking philosophy and so forth. Um, what do you think about children wondering about this? Why do they do that? These are, these are the really interesting questions, yeah. I, I think some of it is baked in. I think it's to do with the nature of introspection. I think we need a substantive story about what's, what's, what's going off here, um, what introspection is tracking. My um, gesture at this is that what it's tracking is something like what I've called a, um, it's creating a, a reaction schema. It's tracking the reactions that sensory stimulation is producing. I, by that, I don't mean behavioral reactions. I mean the, the, the whole complex suite of psychological reactions that are being triggered, um, that it's tracking the shape of those, the unfolding shape of, of the reaction schema, mm. uh, which is certainly something private in one sense in that it's, it's, you know, it's in my head and it's my reaction. So the idea is that describing something as red, maybe that maybe I should we, we should sort of approach this a bit more slowly. But the idea is that when talking about something as being red or painful, we're saying something about how it's affecting us. And I think that introspection is tracking obscurely how that complex pattern of reactive dispositions is is uh, unfolding, changing. When we say something's red, we're saying it's it's pushing it in one direction. When we're saying it's painful, it's another, and so on. And that's what we're getting at with this talk about the feel of experience. This explains the privacy point because it is my reactions that are being tracked. And my reactions are, you know, uh, are mine in a very unmysterious way. They're not, not mine because they belong to some private world that is somehow strangely intimately attached to my body. It's because they are just my reactions, not yours. But it's not too hard to see how it might create the sense of mystery. So there is, it, I agree with Rob, I agree with you, Keith, it does sound like there is a really interesting question to be answered here, which is separate from the hard, quote unquote, hard problem, which gets called the meta problem of consciousness. This is something like the question of, irrespective of whether there is in fact a hard problem in the first place, why it is that when people kind of reflect on the fact that they feel conscious, that there's some really mysterious hard thing to be answered for in the first place, which, as a matter of fact, is the case. Lots of people go around saying there's a problem. You know, people devote philosophy careers to try to figure out this problem. They'll give lecture tours and so on. And the good thing about this problem is that you don't need to start answering the metaphysical, mysterious questions. Presumably, unless things are really weird, we can answer the question of why philosophy professors go and give lecture tours about the hard problem of consciousness in more or less theory-neutral functional terms, you know, in terms of what the hell their brains are doing and what people's brains are doing when they sit down and begin to introspect on their own experiences and half an hour later they reach this point where they feel like there's something really hard to explain going on. In fact, something so hard to explain that it's almost mysterious or non-physical or baffling in some way. Um, and you're kind of suggesting a piece of the answer, which is 
trying to explain why people have these intuitions about privacy of certain kinds of conscious experience. I wonder if that there are other kinds of answers or other angles or pieces of that puzzle that you find especially interesting as well. Well, this this is this was the first substantive question that I, that I that I mentioned at the beginning. This is what I think people should be focusing on. Uh, and, and let me make a methodological point here. I think we should be focusing on this first of all. I, I don't like the term the meta problem because it implies. I think that there is a first order problem, but there really is a hard problem. Um, I wanted to call it the illusion problem. In fact, Dave Chalmers suggested I call it the illusion problem, but then uh, that, of course, is question begging the other way. Well, I don't mind, I don't, you know, mind the term, I know, the meta problem of UFOs, which is something like, irrespective of whether UFOs are aliens, why do people keep thinking that they see UFOs with aliens inside them? Yes, I, suppose, yeah, yes, I, I, I guess it's, it's less question begging the corner at the illusion problem okay now i think we should you, you could call it the, the quasi the quasi meta problem <laughs> it's a meta problem if realism is true i'm always tempted to stick the word quasi in front of something uh, don't don't encourage me um, um but look i think from a methodological point of view that's the one we should be focusing on because suppose we first of all it's tractable we know how to do it more or less you know it's it's not doesn't present a hard problem it's it, they're, they're all easy problems in Chalmers terms term uh, problems that are approachable using the tools of cognitive science um, as we have it or of modest extensions of that. So it's like something we can get on and work on. And suppose we get a pretty good answer to that question. So we can say to someone who has all these, you know, these intuitions, says, conscious, real mystery, I'm really puzzled about it. And we tell them this story about why it is that they have all these intuitions about the mysteriousness of consciousness. And why it seems that it's this, this, this strange um, private inner world with these ineffable properties and so on that doesn't seem to be physical and hang on to it. And we tell them this story. Now, two things might happen. They might go, oh, well, I guess that's it then. I'm not really puzzled anymore. It's just my brain doing all these complex things as well as you know, uh, processing all this information. It's also creating this sense that there's this strange inner world. But I'm not, not puzzled by that anymore. I don't think there is a strange inner world. Uh, and in that case, we, you know, we've solved, we've solved, we've solved everything. Mm. Or they might say, "Yeah, okay, I've, uh, I understand all that, but I'm still absolutely convinced that there really is an inner world." And maybe if everybody feels absolutely convinced of that, even when we've solved the meta problem, uh, then maybe we, maybe we should start having a look at some of the realist theories. I don't know if, if people, if that doesn't satisfy everyone, but let's see if we're satisfied with the, with the meta problem story first, uh, which we can get. Uh, I've argued that we should be satisfied with that and that not to be satisfied with it would be rather like someone who's, who believes in UFOs and then has a complete explanation of why they believe in UFOs, um, which doesn't actually mention real UFOs. It's all to do with, um, optical illusions and um, weather conditions and whatever it is, and says, okay, I accept that you've explained away all my beliefs about UFOs without there being any UFOs, but I still think they're UFOs <laughs> because I just can just tell they're there. Uh, but anyway, methodologically, we should start with the, with, the, with, the, with the meta problem. Yeah, well, I mean, this is just back to the first thing you said. How have you been trying to make progress on the meta problem? Because mm -hmm. one great thing about the meta problem is it's uh, an empirical question. I mean, obviously, plenty of work for philosophers to do to sketch how the answer might go and how it affects how we think about consciousness. But yeah, are you trying to build an empirical theory of why, for example, children are disposed to wonder about color inversion and philosophers are disposed to be dualists? And the whole suite of behaviors that the that we would like some satisfying 
uh, explanation of. I'm certainly speculating on this. And I, I mentioned the stuff that I'm talking about. Uh, they've been talking about the, the action schema, which builds on work that Michael Graziano has done on the attention schema, which I think is also relevant to the to the story. Uh, I, I've, I've been focusing more on a broader brush attempt to get people to reconceptualize consciousness, which I think is a precondition for people starting to do this sort of work. I mean, I think a, a lot of neuroscientists are still following dead ends uh, in thinking about consciousness. So one principal activity is that the second one I mentioned at the beginning, trying to persuade people to think about consciousness in a way that makes the meta problem center stage. But yes, I, I'm doing some sort of theory sketching in that area, but it's a hugely interdisciplinary thing. Mm -hmm. And this is something that we need a big uh, collaborative project on. I'd really like to see that, see that get funded and I'd love to be involved in it. Same here, for sure. Yeah. And I think another angle on this is, um, if you're familiar with Andy Clark's work that combines uh, a predictive processing story with uh, he, he he draws on elements from Daniel Dennett. Daniel Dennett uh, has a story about uh, consciousness as as a matter of uh, tracking affordances in the world around uh, the, the opportunities for behaviour, opportunities for behaviour that that things present. So you know the banana presents the opportunity for eating and so on, or whatever. It is. And this I think this feeds into the story that I'm trying to develop about a reaction schema. Again, we we, we track affordances by by being sensitive to the patterns of reactive dispositions that things are creating in us, um, which tell us about their affordances. So that we not only track the affordances, but are able to track our tracking of the affordances. So it's not just that we, this thing affords some sort of action, but we're aware that it affords that kind of action and therefore can communicate that to other people. Sorry, that's a bit compressed. Anyway, and Andy Clark's got a, a version of his story which is done in terms of predictive processing which I think is uh, a paper called Bayesian, Bayesian Qualia, which is a lovely paper, um, with Carl Friston and uh, another person whose name I forget. I'm sorry. Um, and I think there's gradually the shape of a new consensus is beginning to emerge here, but what we need is a big organized research project on it. Uh, and if I can do anything to help promote that, I'd be glad to. And just to plug some work uh, by... Buck Schleggeris and Luke Mulehauser. And we've talked some about this, um, Keith, uh, an illusionist software agent, which is trying to build at least a toy model of some uh, meta problem processes. Yeah, that should feed into it too. Absolutely. It needs to be... One of the problems with thinking about consciousness is that it's, it's been too um, fragmented. Um, philosophers, I think, have a lot to contribute to it, but I don't think... Well, we've contributed to, well, okay, I don't want to be too uh, controversial here, but I think um, I think philosophers have done a lot to, I was going to say, I was going to say that we've done a lot to, to direct people down, down, um, uh, down uh, um, dead ends. Uh, and I think that's true, though exploring those dead ends isn't necessarily a bad thing, um, since it shows you their dead ends and uh, helps you to find better ones. I think that the, um, I mean, I've written about panpsychism recently, and I, um, I'm quite fascinated by panpsychism because I think if you take this, um, the hard problem, problem intuition seriously, you know, this strong kind of phenomenal realism, then panpsychism looks like a very attractive option. And that, for me, is a sort of modus tollens and a reason for not taking that conception seriously. So I think it's it's interesting to explore these avenues. But the point I was trying to trying, trying to get to is that we've it's been too fragmented. Philosophers have been driving in one direction. Um, the other scientists have 
so, um, there were certain fairly exclusive programs in the United States. You know, there's the integrated information theory um, uh, program, um, higher order thought uh, programs, uh, uh, global workspace programs, and these are largely seen as competing. And there's, there's, I think what I'm trying to get at here is that there are different paradigms that are driving work, different and in, uh, incompatible paradigms, uh, and we need a, a new paradigm. Uh, uh, within which people can work together. I think this might be an instance of a kind of general pattern where the question kind of lies at the boundary between two or more disciplines. You know, in this example, maybe the philosophers often lack some of the kind of useful technical expertise, but the folks in the more kind of technical disciplines like cognitive science or something, or even neuroscience, the kind of funding story's a bit tricky. Uh, it's going to sound a bit weird maybe to... To funders, maybe it's going to be difficult to kind of publish. So it's like not obvious that I should move into like asking these big questions about consciousness. And so the, the incentives just never line up. And it's like a real shame. This is something that's puzzled me for a long time. Um, Daniel Dennett outlined a pretty clear program, I think, of this kind, of this illusionist kind, uh, uh, 30 years ago. And although Dennett has had a huge influence, I don't think anyone would deny he's had influence, it, it hasn't really translated, I don't think, into the sort of concerted scientific research program that it really needs. I think scientific work has been much more limited. Um, I mean, paradigm was the wrong word there, but it's specific um, theoretical approaches like IIT that are, that are really quite restrictive, it, it, there's only one way that sort of program can go in that it can either sort of validate itself or it can't. It's, it's, there's no way of integrating it with other stuff. It's a very, very tightly specified program. And I, I don't think that's the way to go with, with consciousness at the moment. We need, a, we need the right kind of conception of what it is we're trying to, uh, to study. And then we need to have all options on the table, I think. Um, I think something like IIT has is, is, is leaped way beyond what is uh, warranted by the um, by our understanding of the problem. I mean, it's, it's couched within a realist framework anyway. If people have been working on consciousness in a realist framework, here's a naive thought. Can't you just port that over and say they thought they were looking for the neural correlates of consciousness, say? In fact, they were looking for the neural correlates of processes that explain our judgments that we're conscious. Because clearly there is some difference between processes that result in these reports and those that don't. And you could just say global workspace theory was trying to find those. I don't think it's as simple as that, no. Um, um, first of all, uh, you need to make a distinction between first order consciousness and then whatever meta problem processes lead us as reflective creatures to, 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 to develop this conception of consciousness. Um, now I'm inclined right. to say, you know, that consciousness, well, the, 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 contested term, but the way to keep using the term consciousness is to use it for those first order processes, which we'll find widely um, spread in the in the uh, 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 among other animals. Um, and you know, I, I'm happy to talk about processes of like of this kind, more basic processes of this kind, pretty much throughout the animal world. And I think they're going to be graded and messy and complex and there's all kinds of different aspects to them and you can test for specific aspects and certain sorts of discriminations that are involved in being 
conscious in this in this way, but sentient, we might say, you can devise all different kinds of tests, behavioural tests, if we're dealing with 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 uh, with, uh, um, with non-humans, and you'll get positive results on some tests and negative results on other tests and whatever. It's a huge, complex, messy kind of pattern of sensitivity and reaction to the world, and it's not clear cut and hard edge and asking, you know, does this is this animal conscious or not is a meaningless question because it's not a hard edge thing. And then you have the meta-problem processes that generate our particular conception of consciousness. And I, they're probably uh, in their sort of full-blown uh, state. They're probably unique to humans. They may well be unique to humans. But I don't think that's of any great... We can get on to ethical issues here. I don't think that's of any great ethical significance. Now, what are you looking for the neural correlates of? If you're looking for the neural correlates of first-order um, consciousness in this sense, well, pretty much everything's involved in it in some way and, and you don't need to look for the correlates you, you, you can look just look for the for the mechanisms that perform the relevant functions you know you, you don't need to bother with correlates anymore you can just find the mechanisms that do the work we only talk about correlates because we can't conceptualize the thing in functional terms uh, and similarly with the um with the metaprom things again we don't need to look for the correlates we look for the, the mechanisms the systems that produce this um, these relevant the, the, the beliefs and uh, and so on in question um, so we stop looking for correlates at all, and we look for we we conceptualise what we're talking about in functional terms, and then we look for the mechanisms that perform the relevant functions. And I, I mean, I'm very impressed by um, particularly Liz, Liz Irvin's work on measuring consciousness. And the point is that what you find is that that different measures of consciousness, verbal report, um, uh, eye direction, uh, button pressing, different sort of, under different kind of conditions, they don't agree. And why would they agree? They're measuring different things. They're measuring different kind of reaction, kinds of reactions. It's only if you assume there's some kind of hard edge thing here, the light either being on or off, and which of these correlates with the light being on, <laughs> that this question really makes any sense. You know, the, the question of the neural correlates is, is sometimes which... Which of the bits are essential to making the lights come on? <laughs> the lights don't come on, so it's a silly question. Yeah, so at the Future of Humanity Institute, which is where uh, Finn and I both work, uh, we think a lot about whether AIs could feel pain, could suffer, could experience pleasure, and you know how we would know when we've reached that stage and, and how we should act in light of this. Um, it's not news to you or to any listeners that AI is getting increasingly big and complex and sophisticated. And at a certain point, we're you know, going to have to face the question of, do they deserve you know, concern, um, moral concern? The term moral patienthood is one that philosophers use. That's just uh, the question of what things we should extend concern for. So my question for you, Keith, is uh, a lot of people draw a natural intuitive connection between consciousness and moral patienthood. Uh, people seem to think it really matters uh, which animals feel things, which animals experience things, uh, which animals feel pain or feel pleasure. And that's also a natural way of thinking about the problem of AI. Uh, when would we have AIs that can experience things and how would we know? But you don't think consciousness exists. So how do you think about the problem of, of AI consciousness, uh, animal consciousness for that matter, and, and its relationship to moral patienthood. Just a small, small little question for you there. Well, hang on. I, I, you said I don't think consciousness exists. No, I, no I, I, I do think consciousness exists. I just am asking, I'm asking people to reconceptualize uh, consciousness. Um, I don't think the 
kind of consciousness that philosophers tend to to focus on, sometimes called phenomenal consciousness. I don't think that exists. I don't think consciousness is phenomenal consciousness. Um, I, I, I think consciousness is, is very relevant um, to uh, ethical questions. And I, in fact, I think that's one reason for uh, finding the, the, um, the illusionist perspective on consciousness more, uh, more promising. Because suppose we look at, at consciousness in the, in the traditional philosophical way as this, this sort of private inner world. And we also say that that it's the existence of this private inner world that, that really matters uh, ethically. We assume that other, all other humans have it, um, though of course we've never actually uh, uh, experienced their their private mental world. It's private, but we assume that other people have it, other humans have it. Um, but what about other animals? Well, if they're kind of like us, we tend to think, yeah, they probably have a private mental world. Our dogs do, yeah, because you know, well, you can just. They're very like us, and they, they love us, and so on. Um, other mammals, maybe fish, oh, I don't know, they're kind of strange, sort of rather unemotional creatures. Do they have a private inner world? We don't really know. And then get that further down the scale, and think about uh, insects and so on. No, probably not, they're just like little robots. Uh, but we don't know, because, uh, I mean, the famous question, what is it like to be a bat? How do we even know it's like something to be about? We just, whatever this world of private experience is, we, 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 don't, we, we can't access it. We can't even detect its presence. We can hypothesize that it's connected with certain brain processors, and we can look to see if those brain processors are there in other creatures and say, all right, so there they are, they are say in fish, and so probably there's this private world going along with them. But we don't, these are just hypotheses. We've never actually had to test these hypotheses. We can't test them because there was only one instance of this private mental world that we can ever be acquainted with, namely our own. So we're really in a, a, a bit of a dead end for answering this question of which other creatures have it. And when you look at AIs, which um, have uh, their brains, their, their processing systems are quite different from ours, um, have we brought one of these private inner, uh, mental worlds into existence in creating this AI or have we not? Um, how do you know? All we can all we can observe are its are its its reactions, the physical processes inside it. Um, so it looks like we've done a rather we've got ourselves into a rather difficult situation in that we we've, so we've tied ethical value uh, to the existence of of this this uh, this feature this private mental world, but then with this feature is beyond our. Um, uh, our knowledge. We've no way of detecting its presence. So we seem to have, have put ourselves in a, in, a, in, a, in a very awkward position. Now, I think, um, now that wouldn't show in itself that it's, that it's, that it's true. Uh, that, sorry, but that wouldn't in itself show that the position is not true. It could be that that's right, that, you know, the facts that are central to ethical value are facts that we can't ascertain. Um, could be true, but a rather depressing thought. Now, on the illusionist view of this, um, it's, the picture is completely different. It's not about having an, a, a private mental world. It's having, it's about consciousness is a matter of having certain complex patterns of sensitivity and, re, and reactive dispositions. Can I ask a quick, quick question before we move on to the illusionist perspective? I was wondering if I could offer a bit of a reply on uh, on behalf of realists who do try to study animal consciousness. So, 
Keith, you and I have discussed mm-hmm. a great paper by Jonathan Birch at the London School of Economics. So that's kind of what's inspiring my thinking here. Uh, Finn, we've also discussed it. Um, if you're a realist about consciousness, you can still think that consciousness plays some sort of causal role or plays some sort of mental role. And uh, I think that's what Jonathan Birch thinks is probably true. He has what he calls the facilitation hypothesis that um, it, it seems like it might be linked to certain things like multimodal learning and certain behaviors. And we know that that's the case uh, in us. And maybe it's true in animals. And so that at least gives us something to go off of when we go to look for it in animals. There are also various things we can do, like be guided somewhat by structural similarity to the human mind. So all this is just to say, whether we're resting that much on Birch's framework or not, it doesn't seem to me that we're completely you know, completely in the dark as realists about consciousness. We've put ourselves in a very difficult situation, but not impossible. A realist about about this this problematic phenomenal kind of consciousness. I, I, I think I, I, I think you are in a difficult position. The, the suggestion is that maybe consciousness has certain effects, and we can we can look for those effects. Well, now you have um, a kind of dilemma: is consciousness just a physical state of the brain? Or is consciousness not a physical state of the brain? Is it, have you got some sort of property dualism? There are these non-physical properties that, that the brain produces. And that, that's consciousness. Now, let's take the second option. If you say that consciousness is non-physical, but it has effect, then you're saying that you're going to find in the brain uh, physical effects that you can detect, which don't have physical causes, which have causes that are, from a scientific point of view, undetectable. Uh, you're going to be saying that the physical world is not causally closed. Uh, that, that could happen, but I don't. I don't think there's, there's the slightest evidence for it. We don't find neurons firing without some um, adequate physical cause. So I think that route, that interactionist route, is is, not, is a not a promising one. The other one, of course, is to say that well, consciousness in this rich phenomenal sense just it, it is a state of the brain. But then, of course, you have the problem of trying to make that identity. Um, conceivable to, to understand how these 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 pure ineffable fields could really just be patterns of neuron fine so I, I don't think uh, appealing to effects is um is helpful um if you're really sticking to this to this this phenomenal conception of consciousness as pure feel um the other point was you said well maybe we can look that we can look for isomorphisms between certain structures and um and um and consciousness, but again, how do you test for these? Here, I'd maybe it'd be useful to introduce a notion that I, I've used in a recent paper: I've, the phenomenal conception of consciousness, the conception of consciousness as mental qualities, as pure fields, is a de-psychologized conception of consciousness. And that is, it's a conception of consciousness as something that that isn't just a matter of the performance of certain functions, of certain things, um, certain operations being carried out. It's conceptualized as pure quality, pure feel, the what it is likeness of being in whatever functional state it might be. Okay, so there's no conceptual connection between the two. Okay, so you can't deduce the existence of consciousness from the existence of certain functions, certain operations being carried out. Uh, so, what reason do you have to think there's an isomorphism between them? Well. Maybe you can do establish it inductively by doing tests and seeing um, what when people are in a certain 
um, when their brains are doing certain things, performing certain operations, they're, they're having a certain experience. But the trouble is you can't do this because all you can test for is a correlation uh, between those brain operations and certain reports or reactions that the person might uh, make. They might say, oh, yes, I can. I, I see the light. Or they might press a button to say that they see a light. Or they might react in some, or their pupils might dilate or whatever it might be. There might be some physical reactions that you take to be indicative of the presence of phenomenal consciousness. And you can establish correlations between brain operations and those things. But those things aren't consciousness. Consciousness is specifically supposed to be something that can't be characterized in terms of functions or reactions or um, um, anything like that. So you cannot do this inductively. And I've argued you can't even do it in the first person by testing on yourself, but the argument for that's a little bit longer. So, and this is why once you become, once you take this phenomenal conception of consciousness seriously, the path is open to a kind of panpsychism. Because if there isn't any conceptual connection between the performance of certain functions, certain psychological functions and consciousness, and then why do you need a psychology at all to have it? Maybe everything has got this interior um, aspect to it. Maybe tables and, and trees and, and, uh, uh, and, and atoms have this private inner world, maybe a very simple version of it. Once you conceptualize it in that way, um, I, I, don't, I, I can't see any argument for, 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 for ruling that out. So I, I do think the, the situation here once you locate ethical value in this private mental world and you conceptualize that private mental world as having no, no a priori connection with anything that's detectable, then I think all you've got are a bunch of assumptions um, about what matters, about which, which kind of creatures matter. And you're, you, you make your picture of consciousness fit those assumptions. And you say, okay, well, I'm confident that it's there in other animals. Not sure about fish. They're not bothered about spiders. And I'm sure it's not there in electrons. And th th but those are just a bunch of pre-theoretical intuitions that you have. And you shape your, your, your theory about the distribution of consciousness to fit them. There's no way of actually, no principled way of deciding uh, w w where these private mental worlds are actually distributed. So what I'm hearing you say is... It's like you're delivering good news here about certain ethical questions about which kinds of mental states matter to the question of how we go about finding which things have those mental states and what those mental states actually are. And the good news is that previously some people thought that maybe these ethically significant states like happiness or certain kinds of suffering are essentially private and mysterious in other ways, which would make them... Um, at best, very difficult to investigate, like Rob pointed out. And you're saying, no, I'm just denying that this private stuff exists. And that's good because it means everything we care about, all this happiness or suffering, all of this is, in principle at least, investigable. It's, it's in the public sphere there. It's not closed off behind private inner mental world. That's exactly, that's exactly um, the message. You know, I'm not denying that, you know, that, that, that happiness and, and pain and so yeah. on. And we can yeah. recognize when they're occurring. But the, the next thing I want to say is that maybe there is a kind of more pessimistic framing of of exactly what you're saying, which is, well, maybe the story is that on lots of sensible sounding ethical views, questions about ethics, they kind of bottom out, they ground out on mental states that we take to kind of matter in some intrinsic or fundamental way, right? So certainly when I like experience really bad pain or like I'm really happy, um, feels to me like these are mental states which are kind of they don't matter 
with respect to something else, they're just like intrinsically good or bad. And indeed, they have all these problematic features. Like they do really actually feel kind of private and essential and ineffable. And part of me thinks that that's part of what makes them important. And you're denying that this kind of phenomenal consciousness exists at all. And so maybe the feeling is a bit like the rug has been pulled out of any kind of ethical enterprise that tries to ground out uh, what matters in these kinds of mental states. And um, that feels a bit worrying, a bit destabilizing. Maybe the question is something like, where do you go from there? What do you identify as as the things that actually matter once you've got rid of the kind of obvious candidates? That makes sense. Yeah, I- I'm going to use an example that I that I often use, and which I borrowed from Daniel Dennett. Um, it's a lovely example, one of the best um, uh, little thought experiments in this uh, in this area. It's about the, the, the value of of, of, a, of a currency, a dollar, say. And as Dennett points out, the Americans tend to feel that the dollar has a kind of intrinsic value to it that other currencies don't have. That other currencies are. Like they're kind of foreign people. Other people have these bits of paper that they exchange, and that you know they can get things for, and so on. And you can you can exchange these for 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 dollars, perhaps. But dollars are the ones that have the real value. They have a kind of uh, intrinsic value that's uh, sort of vim, I think he call, he calls it. Um, that that you can sort of just feel it. You know, that's you just. But, but, but of course, they, 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 they don't. They're just tokens, and their whole power resides in what you can do with them. And the the the, the notion of the, the vim, the intrinsic um, power of, of the dollar, is a sort of illusion. But it's not an illusion based on nothing. And this is why I would add to, to, to Dennett's point here is that uh, when you talk about the value of a dollar, for someone who's accustomed to using dollars, you see, this uh, this is why it's not just a sort of uh, um, a anti-American point to say that Americans think of this. Any currency that you're familiar with, you're kind of aware of its potency. You're aware of the things that it affords you. To, you know, you know that you know you can do things with this. You can get things with it. It seems to have a power, and we kind of conceptualize that power as something residing in the thing itself. Whereas, of course, it isn't. It's just a matter of the social conventions and so on, and what other people will give you for it and so on. And that's very much, I think, about consciousness. That we feel that these states have some sort of intrinsic nature to them that is that grounds their their potency. But really, it's a matter of of what they do. Of what effects um, this state has on you, and so I have a. I'll tell you my 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 own little sort of version of this, um, which asks you to imagine uh, to think about pain. Uh, and now let's take the sort of phenomenal realist view of, of pain. So let's think pain is let's say some kind of activity in certain um, uh, sensory uh, certain pain centers in your brain. Okay, philosophers often say that it's C fiber firing. Now, according to the traditional view, there's sort of two things happening here. First of all, those C-fiber firing, they're having all kinds of effects on the rest of your brain and consequently on a, a psychology. They're triggering um, beliefs. You believe something terrible is happening. They, uh, they're triggering emotions. You're, you know, you're feeling fear and distress. Um, they're making you anxious. They're, they're, they're having physiological effects. They're making, it's making you uh, changing your hormones and so on, stress levels and things. Um, it's making you um, fearful. It's maybe making you anticipate uh, all kinds of uh, bad consequences from the damage. It's making you want for the damage, whatever's causing the, the, the damage to stop. Um, it's, it's having a host of psychological effects, many of which perhaps are sort of are you only barely conscious of, or and many of which you're not conscious of at all. Um, and it's also supposed to have just a pure intrinsic feel to it, a pure intrinsic awfulness to it. And this, of course, is 
supposed to be analogous to the to the dollar. The dollar has this power to to do things in virtue of the social conventions that you know you can exchange it for, what you can do with it. But it's also, according to the naive view, supposed to have this intrinsic value. Um, and so my thought experiment imagines two um, different anaesthetics, one of which uh, has the effect of of killing the all the of stopping all the reactions that the pain normally triggers but leaving the intrinsic field intact and the other which does the opposite it uh, uh, all the normal reaction it, the state produces all the normal reactions all the normal psychological reactions um but it doesn't have the 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 um the intrinsic um awfulness to it so if you imagine what would happen in the first case you would react exactly as if you were in um as if you were in, in pain you would believe you were in pain you would want um, whatever's causing the pain to stop you would feel the emotions associated with pain you'd feel fear and you feel you would cry out you'd, you'd be, you know you would beg for help and you and so on and so on all of these really complex um uh, psychological reactions and physiological reactions but supposedly there'd be no actual intrinsic pain in the other case the pain would somehow the intrinsic pain would still be there but you would have no kind of awareness of it it would almost be that from a psychological point of view it was you you weren't aware of it you weren't you didn't notice it you didn't you don't believe it's there you don't feel um any fear you don't um uh, you don't want uh, whatever um, those causing the, the thing to stop you you're quite content and you perhaps continue having a um a, 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 a relaxed conversation with somebody now so the question is which would you go for which is the real heart of the pain um uh, the, 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 for you, which, which, which anaesthetic would you take, assuming that they're, they're, they're not, you can't take both? And which is the real source of ethical concern? Now, my intuition is that if you spell out the psychological picture, the picture of the psychological effects of pain in anything like a, a full detail, you'll see that that really that captures all that's really significant about pain. And this supposed uh, intrinsic feel that's, that somehow... Um, uh, there isn't really any intrinsic feel left over at all. Certainly not something that is really the heart of the matter, um, any more than you need there to be an intrinsic value to the dollar. What matters is that you can buy things with it. So I think this way of thinking kind of undermines this idea that that we need intrinsic, the, that we have intrinsic feels, or that they would matter if they did. So I think once you start to really pull this apart, this kind of natural um uh way of talking that yes there's this there's this intrinsic feel you see that it's really just shorthand for your sense of all the effects of the state just as your talk of the intrinsic value of the dollar is a sort of shorthand for everything you can do with the dollar so Finn, maybe you can do a a poll of your listeners you could do some experimental philosophy because <laughs> as an intuition pump that experiment actually pushes me towards caring about the intrinsic feel. Um, I, I would take the pill that gets rid of the intrinsic feel, especially if we can bracket that the the reactions aren't going to have downstream effects of, you know, bodily damage will cause bad, future bad things to happen. But bracketing that, as, as I take it we're meant to, um, if, if intrinsic awfulness did exist, granting that, I would still think that that's what matters. Now, this could be because I've spent way too much time at NYU. Um, <laughs> but more pessimistically, it could be that there is this very deep, intuitive 
connection that we draw between phenomenal consciousness and value. And if that's true, um, then then I'm in that sort of pessimistic place that Finn is, that we're sort of kind of out at sea, uh, meta-ethically. But, but it, 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 I, I don't... I'm, I don't... <laughs> Take the dollar thing again. When people talk about, assuming they, someone does talk about the intrinsic value of the dollar, I'm not. My claim isn't that they're just talking about nothing. That there's just there's just there is nothing intrinsic there. But what they are trying to capture and trying to express with that language is their sense of the the potency of the dollar, what they can do with it, what it affords them. So it's capturing something real and something very important. <laughs> Financially, what you can do with the dollar is, you know, it's, it's, and you can't do that with a foreign currency, say, if it's not legal in your country. So you don't feel that that foreign currency has it. And so you're capturing something really important, um, uh, something real and something financially important. Similarly, with our talk of the intrinsic feel of pain, you're capturing something real. Now, all of this, you know, as it were, <laughs> like the, the impact the world is making on you right now. And that's that's something pretty important. And that's what you're tracking with your talk of the intrinsic fields. And that really matters because how the world affects people matters. So if they're being uh, you know, damaged and hurt and treated bad, that matters. And that's what you're tracking. Uh, and if they're being you know, treated well in ways that promote their flourishing and so on. That's, that matters. And that's what you're tracking. You're tracking, you know, what's really happening, if you like. But you're expressing that in a language of intrinsic feels. So I'm not saying you're, you know, that this, that this way you want to conceptualize it is completely uh, idle. You're not, you know, you're not picking up on anything important. You are. But I don't think you have to sort of take it <laughs> to... Um, to uh, literally. Um, now, why isn't that enough? Then, are you still feeling pessimistic about value? And and how did that thought experiment hit you? <laughs> so, I am just deeply confused now. I think uh, it sounds like Keith is using this thought experiment to push in the direction of illusionism. Rob is saying, "Well, actually, I'm kind of sympathetic to maybe the intrinsic thing mattering," and. I'm not sure where to go. I think um, one thing hearing you describe that thought experiment, Keith, did make me think was, well, I'm trying to imagine what it would be like in this example where I'm experiencing some kind of um, profoundly bad intrinsic experience, right? Intrinsic experience of pain, but it's failing to hook in functionally with anything else. So I'm behaving and I'm forming beliefs just as if I wasn't in severe pain, right? I'm like absolutely baffled by what that would be like or feel like. And maybe it's kind of so confusing that that's just indicating that the assumptions that led to thinking this is even coherent uh, were going wrong. That's, that's exactly the point. I can't, I can't make sense of it either. Um, it, we, we talk a lot about zombies and philosophical literature. Oh, there's another sort of character that isn't talked about much, which I want to talk about, which is what I'll call qualia agnosics. And these are people who are not, don't psychologically, they have qualia, but they don't psychologically react to them in any way. They're not aware of them in a psychological sense. They don't notice they have them. They don't have any psychological reactions to qualia, mm. any at all. Mm. So like, they, you, they, they could be like a sort of invert, I suppose, that um, their qualia are just kind of free, free, um, free floating. 
okay? And the while you were doing whatever they're doing, the pain, pleasure, whatever, no connection with how the person's um, behaving. Uh, no connection with any of their psychological reactions. Yeah. If you ask the person, you know, what, what, what you're feeling, they give you some report that's based on their introspection of physical states, okay, not on their qualia. Then they don't notice their qualia at all. Now, it seems to me that the same considerations that support the conceivability of zombies support the conceivability of qualia agnosics, because it's the crucial point is that there's no a priori connection between functions mm-hmm. and and feel. Okay, so it seems to me that if you can conceive of zombies, you should be able to conceive of qualia agnosics. I, I don't think I can. Yeah, just just to just to hop in and, and clarify what my reaction was to the thought experiment, it wasn't. Uh, that I now feel like a, a consciousness realist because, uh, like like Fen, I'm just very confused. It's that I do feel like I draw a connection between phenomenal consciousness, which does not exist uh, on Keith's view, and value. And so I am in a position where I'm thinking Keith is being very kind of accommodating to common sense statements like pain is bad. Uh, we're, we're a little confused about what we mean by pain, but like that sentence is true because we are picking out these reactions and these reactions matter. So pain is, is bad. Pain does matter. I've often find myself more in a mindset where I'm like, it turns out I was confused about consciousness, which I thought was the thing I knew the most about. And now that that has been kicked away by Keith and Dennett and many others, why not just think I'm extremely confused about value and what matters? Um, in as much as illusionism is a radical picture um, and counterintuitive, why not go with a, a radical and counterintuitive view of of what matters? Oh, so you're saying that the illusionism sets a sort of precedent um, mm. that you might then apply in the ethical realm? That it's a sort of skeptic. That's one. That's one thing. It would be kind of yeah. This is like so sketchy, but it's like this very sketchy methodological thought where. I feel like I'd be somewhat con- somewhat surprised if something that was so central to my conception of the world was wrong, and then that left a bunch of other stuff relatively unscathed, like my moral intuition about what matters. To quickly pile in as well, I suppose an extra thing you could say is that um, if you were in a kind of less accommodating ecumenical mood, then presumably uh, evolutionism is right, then most people are just literally wrong about what matters ultimately because if you pressed people on what they think really matters at least when it comes to experience they would probably say something like well this pain just matters intrinsically or fundamentally in a way that isn't hooked into that well they wouldn't use uh, the words reactions at least sure but something like that i think that's a that's a that's no, I think there's a that's a philosophical overlay on what they okay. would say. What they would say is, you know, they would just point to examples if you want to say, you know, what, what, what do you mean by pain? And they'd say, This, what happens when I, you know, I stub my toe or whatever, when I have a bad headache or whatever it is. They just everybody knows what pain is. We can recognize it, and moreover, we can recognize it perfectly well in other creatures without having any access to any private world. You can see when a dog is suffering. Uh, as uh, 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 you don't, you know, it's not this is one of the what, what I take as a, a positive um, consequence of illusionism that, that there isn't that what matters isn't sealed off from us in, pri- in, in separate mental worlds um, that are inaccessible to us. You can you can see where if you attend properly, okay, people can act, people can deceive, and so on. But if you attend fully, but descending fully might even involve you know being having some sort of access to the to the actual events in, inside their inside their brains. If you attend fully, you can you can get all the information you need. Um, 
It's all out there. This is the common sense for you. you if you asked someone on the street, you know, how do you know that dog is suffering there that's, that's, that's just been um, beaten or something? They're not going to say, well, I can't really because I can't access its, its private mental world of quiet. They're not going to say that. Uh, and so I think this this picture of of, of intrinsic um, uh, mental qualities uh, that, you know, that which we have some kind of immediate acquaintance with um, this is this is a philosophical overlay on all of that. I mean, the, the, the ethical intuitions come first. Mm. Uh, they're, they're grounded in how we live and how we react to, to each other and to the rest of the world, and they're part of how we what it is to be to be human. And uh, um, yeah, we can maybe tinker around with them a bit, perhaps in the light of theory. But uh, they're not grounded in some theory of consciousness. Um, I mean, after all, this this sort of whole approach to consciousness is one that's that's that only originated in the um, you know the early modern period. Something um, that Rob and I and others were talking about yesterday, as it happens, was this example of these little robot dogs that are used as kind of pack carriers for the US military, if I remember right. And um, someone was saying that turns out that soldiers feel really empathetic towards these robot dogs when they kind of get knocked down or something, right? Mm -hmm. To the extent that they end up risking their own <laughs> livelihoods or something, or, or at least taking risks to look after the robot dogs. Uh, <laughs> it seems to me like... Um, Maybe there isn't a sealed-off private kind of fact of the matter about which things are worth caring about, but pretty obviously, um, I don't think these robot dogs are like intrinsically yeah, worth looking no, after, right? So, I, I agree. I mean, they're designed, I suppose, to 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 display certain sort of cues, um, and it would be useful to design them to display the sort of cues that trigger uh, those kind of reactions in people, because people will will look after them, mm -hmm. protect them, and they're quite expensive. Um, so yes, they display um, you know superficial, pretty important superficial signs mm. of, of of distress. Um, but if you attend to them much more closely, and then you'll soon see that they're not they're not displaying the sort of they're not displaying the psychological reactions that we'd expect. Okay. Um, I think I see where Finn is driving, so I'm gonna I'm gonna try to press it in. Yeah. Uh, mm. I think Keith, you were saying we can just see that dogs are suffering, um, biological dogs, mm. um, and I agree that dogs are suffering, but. If by see that they're suffering, you mean see just from their external behavior, that doesn't that doesn't seem right. No, no, you're, you're quite right. But what, what we we see it against a background of interaction with dogs that is much much more complex. Um, you know, we we, we 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 know we live with these creatures. Well, some of us do anyway. We live with these creatures. We observe them. We interact with them in all sorts of of, of, of ways. We know something. We know a great deal about their. Um, the biology and their and their and their psychology and so on, and we're, so we're interpreting this behaviour that you see of this particular dog in the light of all that background knowledge, which we just don't have for these, um, and, and that's how we're interpreting the behaviour of the uh, of the uh, the robot dogs. But of course, the the, the 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 background doesn't apply to the robot dogs. What I mean is that there's I, I don't I don't mean that we can't be tricked. Of course, we can, um, um, but uh, I, I, there's nothing deeply hidden. There's nothing to which we there's nothing to which we don't have access in principle. That's the that's the point. Mm -hmm. And this isn't really a question, but I I feel like I really want to just emphasize how weird mm -hmm. this feels to me, whether or not it's right. Because I really want to say that there is a fact of the matter about whether or not the lights are on in the robot dog. Um and you're denying any kind of deep fact about whether what the that, lights what are on. What does that even mean? Well, it's hard to express. What, does it, I, what does it mean though? For the lights? Obviously there are no lights, so what what does it mean? Lights are on is a metaphor. Okay, so what's it a metaphor for? 
this is where I think I come up blank and end up wanting to kind of point to something like this right now, you know, this, this thing I'm seeing, this thing I'm experiencing, right? <laughs> well, this is real. This, yeah, look, yeah, I, I, that, that's, that's, the, that's the, the innocent notion of consciousness. I'm quite happy with this. What's going on now? Something weird. Gosh. Yeah. Now, the idea that I can progress from that by sort of pure introspection to, to a metaphysical theory of consciousness, I, I, mm. and that's, that's, that's where I go wrong. Um, I don't. I mean, I mean, one thing, friends. Um, we can start to, to pick away at this, you know, with things with the sort of quite thought experiments that um, that Dan Dennett has used in, in, in his work. Um, things like um, mm. change blindness, the fact that we only have a very limited uh, awareness of the of, of uh, things in the periphery of our visual field. That you know, we seem to be confronted with a rich and detailed no, this, this rich and detailed visual world i have no it's not actually rich and detailed and if you just focus you only have fine fine grained vision within about two percent or something um there's all sorts of ways that you can begin to pick apart pick away at this uh, let me try maybe I, maybe this is a good point to try one of my own favorite thought experiments here if uh, is that okay I'll try one on you well just with the warning it, it might push me in the wrong in the wrong direction <laughs> <laughs> okay it's uh, you may have heard this before you've heard me, t- me talk about this because it's one of my favorites it, it's um it's the pickle pickle jar so i want some pickles okay so i go to the fridge and the refrigerator and i open the 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 the, the, the door and i look and i scan the inside of, of the fridge and i can't see the pickles so i call to my partner i say where are the pickles and she says, they're right in the fridge. I've just put them back. They're right there. And look again. So I turn back to the fridge, and there they are, right in front of me on the middle shelf, staring me in the face, as we say. Okay. Well, I think we've all, we've all done that sort of thing. And it's also quite common, quite natural to think, hang on a minute. Why didn't I spot them the first time? What was my experience of the fridge like the first time I looked? Because here they are right in front of me. How could I have missed them? Okay. So what was my experience like? What was sort of showing in this inner world where, 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 the, where the, the, the inner lights and the inner show are? What was there at that point in my visual field the first time I looked? If I could spool back the tape of my experience and have another look at it, what would I find there at that location? And it's hard to see what could be there. I mean, if there was a pickle jar there, well, why on earth didn't I react to it? If that was being, if I was looking for the pickle jar and that was actually there confronting me, my private inner mm-hmm. world that I'm intimately acquainted with, surely I should have reacted. Um, was there just a sort of blank there? Well, if there was a blank, wouldn't I have noticed that there was a sort of hole? <laughs> it, was it filled in with other products, other, with milk or something? So why? Now, it's very tempting to think there must be a determinate answer to that, that there must have been something there in my visual field. If there is this sort of inner world, the lights are on, what's what's there to see in this inner world where the lights are on? But I think, if you think about it, there doesn't have to be an answer to that question. Yeah, uh, it's kind of Any answer is sort of kind of arbitrary and unsatisfactory. Um, the fact is, I just didn't react to the presence of the pickles. I didn't react psychologically to the presence of the pickles. They didn't enter into my sort of construal of the world, my take on the world. I was, I, I came away that first time with a non-pickle-based <laughs> interpretation <laughs> of the world. And I, all the reactions were sort of um, pickleless reactions. And that's mm-hmm. all there was to it. There didn't have to be some rendering of the world in some inner 
um, medium of me to react to. And of course, if you say that there, there was a, an image of a, a pickle jar in that inner world, why didn't I react to that? Now, if you say, if you provide some sort of explanation of why I didn't react to the rendered image of the, the pickle jar in the, in the private inner world, why, is, why can't I just tell that story about the, the actual pickle jar in the fridge? Why I didn't react yeah. to it, okay? We just reproduced yeah. the problems. So I think it's, I think that what this is trying to pick away at is the idea that we need to have this, this inner world, this inner rendering of the outer world. Now, if this inner world isn't a rendering of the outer world, well, what is it? I mean, if you want to say that talk of the inner lights is a metaphorical way of talking about being locked onto the outer world in a specially kind of attentive and focused way, and being aware of that locking on, then yeah, okay, I could, I could, mm. I could talk about that. I could, I could, I could, I could, I could see metaphorical ways of cashing it out that are okay. But it it's always gets cashed out in this sort of naive, sort of rendering in, in, in phenomenal qualities way. And what, okay, so let's say that, that we, look, what we can all agree is we have this talk about the inner world and inner lights and what it's like and all this. We all have this talk and, it's sort, and it makes sense to us. It's tracking something. Okay, now one way of cashing that out is, is as a rendering of the world in, in, in mental, in phenomenal qualities, mental qualities. Okay, that's one way of cashing it out. It creates all kinds of problems, but, you know, there are ways of trying to deal with them. Are there no other ways of, of, of cashing out that talk? Well, yes. And let's consider some of them, especially since the, the kind of realist one creates so many problems. Yeah. I, I really want to say that, so I think I'm very sympathetic to everything you're saying. And if someone asks, I'd probably say I'm an illusionist about consciousness. Oh, wow. But whenever I really attend to, you know, what I'm, for instance, if I attend to what I'm seeing right now, and I think, well, if I take seriously the thing you just said, in some sense, there's just no deep fact of the matter about what I'm currently seeing, which is kind of a bewildering thought. Also, um, I'm reminded of this, I think it's Ned Block, maybe this example where you're sitting in your room and um, yeah. all of a sudden you hear the air conditioner switch <laughs> off. Yeah. And you can ask this question, was I hearing the air conditioner beforehand? Because I didn't realize it was on before it switched off. And you're saying, well, you know, in some sense, it's just no answer exactly. to that question. Exactly. It's not like there was an inner sound stage, which was either reproducing the sound or it wasn't. Exactly. I mean, you know, again, I mean, a lot of the metaphors and things I use here derive from Dennett. I mean, um, think about it like, you know, the, you are kind of, your access to your own mind, to your own brain is through a sort of public relations department, which gives you a kind of digest of what's going off. And that public relations department has a lot of information feeding into it all the time, but it's not outputting a lot. And as soon as you ask it a question, it suddenly pours out all kinds of stuff. Pay attention to what, what you can feel right now in your sort of left foot. Well, once you pay attention to it, you get all kinds of information about it. You know, maybe it feels a bit itchy or something, or maybe you're aware of its position, which you, you know, uh, and so on. Uh, were you aware of those things before? Were they sort of present in your, in your consciousness before? The information was being registered at some level, but it didn't have a lot of salience. And as soon as you started attending to it, it got a lot of salience and you were able to report it and reflect on it and obsess about it and maybe, you know, sort of talk about the, the feel of it and all this stuff. Uh, there's just, you know, there's masses of information waiting for you to tap. But if you ask, was that information rendered phenomenally before I tapped it? <laughs> Uh, it's it's as you say it's it's a non 
a non-question. And was it or wasn't it rendered phenomenally well? Suppose there were a fact of the matter. It would still be nothing to us. <laughs> I'm not persuading Rob. I can see that. <laughs> Well, actually, I'm going to turn a question back on Keith. I was, I was going to say, you know, the case for religionism, I, I do find very compelling. Um, I, I don't think I have like full belief in it, uh, which raises the question. Um, yeah, Keith, what, what is your uh, credence in illusionism? So I think in, in some public forum and certainly in conversation, I've heard uh, Dave Chalmers give his you know credence in physicalism, dualism, illusionism. Um, what's your what's your spread? Oh, you know, I have this. Uh, I have uh, this character I call the Truth Demon. Um, the Truth Demon knows the answers to every to every question it asks, uh, and it asks you to 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 answer these questions on something you know, pain of death if you get them wrong. So, so, the, the, so the point is to test whether you really believe the things you profess. You know, do you really have more than fifty percent confidence? Mm. Is this really your best bet at truth, mm. or is it just something you say for other reasons? The truth demon tests it, it gets this out of you, because it's overwhelmingly your interest to get the answer right, and all other considerations uh, fall away. Um, so, I think so. I think I probably were. I think I would say yes to the to the truth demon. So that's more than fifty percent. Yeah. Okay. Here's what's here's what's happening. Um, my motivation used to be a prior commitment to physicalism, so it was the it was the the implausibility of the non physical option physicalist options that that moved me towards um, something like illusionism. But I think increasingly it's more than that. It's that I don't think that that, that phenomenal realism, quality of realism, is even coherent. And if it's not coherent, then I can't give it much credence at all. It's not just that it comes with a lot of heavy metaphysical baggage, which I don't want to take on board. It's that I can't make sense of it. So you're you're good friends with Philip Goff and and speak with him a lot. You also um, have great regard for Dave Chalmers. Yes. Neither of them have gotten you to five percent, five percent on panpsychism, right. um, or it's just that you can't make sense of it. And so I, I, I now look, my my credence in panpsychism conditional on realism being true would be quite high. I think panpsychism is probably the best realist theory. Um, so I'd be, I, I, you know, I can see the route from realism to panpsychism is quite a is quite a, quite quite an attractive one, quite a plausible one. Um, but realism itself, as I say, I'm increasingly, I'm increasingly, I, I can't, I don't make for, for examples like the one I was using about stripping away all the reactions and leaving the pure feel, intrinsic feel. I increasingly find it hard to, you know, or the, the qualia agnosiac who doesn't notice that. I increasingly find it hard to to see what I'm supposed to be having any credence in. That is kind of philosophically interesting question, right? Like how and whether you can have a credence in something which you think is literally incoherent because you're not asking the question, am I in the world in which this thing is true? And I think there are like fewer worlds in which it's true than other worlds. It's more like credence in what or something. Of course, yeah, my credence in the view would have to reflect the fact that I wasn't confident that it wasn't that I was right about it being incoherent. But then you wouldn't know exactly what it is you're believing. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm a fallibilist, so you know, yeah, I mean, I could be wrong about anything. So yeah, I've got, to, I've got to give a, I mean, a rational person gives some credence to every every contingent. Uh, some some philosopher, I, I can't remember who said. Uh, I just heard this remark once. Um, in order to understand a philosophical view, you have to believe it. Um, <laughs> I don't think that's quite tr true in the sense that you have to, I mean, here I, this is another thing I used to, 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 to write about, but it comes to belief and acceptance, where acceptance is more like trying on a view. It's like adopting it and, you know, using it as a, as a foundation, as a, as a premise in your reasoning. And I think maybe you have to accept a view, at least, you know, temporarily, and think it through 
And I think I've done that with panpsychism. You have to say, okay, let, let's say I'm a panpsychist. What follows? How does this work out? And I think you have to do that. Now, it doesn't necessarily mean having a lot of credence in it because credence is separate from acceptance. You have to you have to try it on, try it out. It's like, you know, you have to get in the car and take it on a test run and see how it performs. Uh, but you don't have to actually buy the car. You know? So, um, right, I think we so often caricature other people's views. So we have a, we have a, a lot of threads and what Keith just said about caricaturing people, I'm going to flag that for later, but also I feel like I keep derailing us and we, we need to talk about the robot dogs. Um, and we need to find out what, uh, what Keith is going to, to do and think as we steer into the future, uh, with extremely complicated, weird yeah. artificial beings that are sharing the world with us. Yeah. So when you, wonder if we might make some sort of moral mistake uh, about some animals or about artificial beings. How are you thinking about that mistake? What sort of mistake could we be making? Or could we make a mistake about which creatures we value and which ones we don't? Again, the realist has a a picture that seems very natural to me. Ultimately, it might be confused. Um, But the realist can say, well, there's some fact of the matter about which ones can feel pain and which ones can't. So I guess the question is, yeah, what are like the what are the conditions for it being a fact of the matter? What what sort of things should we be looking for in animals and in artificial entities, such that we should start caring about them? Uh, we're, I mean, we're sort of tuned up to react ethically to to see the world in ethical terms. To react, um, we don't just react uh, on a purely sort of self interested basis. Okay. And we're tuned up to do that um, by, I suppose, a combination of evolution and culture. Okay. Now, maybe we can change that, revise that, improve on it in the light of theoretical considerations. I don't know. Um, but I don't think that considerations of consciousness are going to force us to do that. Um, because I think let's just just start where we are. We're tuned up to say to care about other fellow creatures, other humans, animals, when they're in certain um, states, states that we recognise in ourselves generally, in which we assume they are also uh, experiencing. Now we're tracking something real here when we talk about this. Tracking something that real that occurs in us and that we and that uh, we assume occurs in them. And let's say we call it we call it experience, consciousness, whatever we call it. And we can investigate what that is. We can find out what actually we are tracking. And uh, I don't believe there's anything there's anything deeply hidden here. There's a, 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 what we're tracking is really a bunch of complex sensitivities and reactive dispositions. Certain ways of uh, in which the world, certain ways in which the world impacts on, on, on creatures. And we can say, look, we can produce a sort of list of the, 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 the states in the world that matter to us, the states of other creatures that matter to us. And then maybe we can say, if I know, an artificial creature is in a, an AI is in a, sem- a suitably similar state, then we should extend our concern to it. Um, and that's really it, <laughs> as far as I see. We might then on separate independent grounds try to, uh, uh, it might be argued, they say on utilitarian grounds, I'd argue that we should extend this concern in various ways or uh, take its um, um, precepts more seriously. Or, but I don't see how considerations about consciousness as such affect any of this. Talk about 
suffering and so on is picking out certain states in the world and uh, we can investigate what those states are and uh, and and extend our concern to other creatures that possess the same what the similar ones uh, yeah so can i just to follow up on that so what we're picking out is a as you say a complex set of dispositions well let's say um, that's what it is i mean we can find out what it is exactly yeah yeah hmm. But I mean, for an illusionist, it will be more complex in some sense than it is for the uh, realist, because the realist can say there's this thing we pick out and they can use a phenomenal mm-hmm. concept to pick it out. Um, mm-hmm. So it is going to be complex, let's say. We don't know exactly what it is. But given that it's complex, like on a cartoon picture, let's say that there's like 60 different complicated dispositions that we're picking out when we think about human mm-hmm. suffering. Mm-hmm. Um is there a fact of the matter about what we should do with a creature that has 40 of those dispositions? And then also just to put it in, in your own terms, um, you said, you said like similar dispositions is maybe something we should care about. Mm-hmm. But of course you're going to need a, you know, a similarity metric. Um, Multidimensional. Yeah. Any thoughts on what yeah. that looks like? Well, we need to have some way of mapping the, um, the, the complex of dispositions. I suggest I've, I'm sketching ideas of this in terms of what I call a reaction schema, which would have multiple different dimensions. Um, but yes, it is going to be multidimensional. And so what do you do, say about a creature that's, you know, high on some dimensions and low on others? <laughs> uh, we have to decide. Um, we're not, you know, w- w- we have pretty strong intuitions about certain paradigm cases. And uh, we have to decide how we're going to uh, what we're going to do, what we're going to say about ones that are more peripheral, um, knowing more about what's actually happening in the paradigm cases and about how closely related the peripheral ones are to the paradigm cases is should help us guide, I guess, how we extend our or retract our concern. Um, but you know, again, it's not a matter of the lights being on or off, and you know, concern or no concern. But we need to think more generally about what we're trying to do with our with our ethical. Attitudes. This is where you need to get where you get into matter ethics, I assume. And I don't really, I don't really have a, a, a take on this, but I don't think considerations of consciousness raise um, problems that we don't face in a, in, other, in other areas. It's all going to be very messy and complex and multidimensional, and we just have mm-hmm. to try and negotiate and find a way that uh, that we feel serves whatever purposes we think that ethics is serving, ethic, ethical um, discourse serves. It's funny because in some sense it would be really suspiciously convenient if there were just kind of mental states or brain states that were somehow labelled by the universe <laughs> as good or bad. And at the same time, hearing you say all this, it does feel kind of uncomfortable, right? There's like no place to rest your hat nothing to kind of ground out in some stable, obvious way, the things we care about. So I don't really know what to do with all of this. Um, yeah, I mean, it's certainly a sort of, I guess, a kind of anti-foundationalist position in that sense, but I'm very generally anti-foundationalist. I mean, I, I, we have to make sense of things on the fly. We, ha- we have to, <laughs> we make sense of things by living them through, as it were. Our ethical attitudes are ones that, that we, we can live through, um, and, uh, I'm suspicious of attempts to, you know, to ground all this on some, in some, uh, set of, uh, basic principles. I, I mm. think that's kind of how ethics works. It's a, it, it emerges in a social setting. Um, and as society changes and we incorporate new elements into our society, maybe artificial elements, then we change. Um, if a society had negotiated a, a line of concern that excluded 
dogs, uh, mm-hmm. say, and the society was full of dogs that were in terrible suffering. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, you could take our society, which is full mm-hmm. of, you know, factory farmed animals that are suffering mm-hmm. terribly. Yes, indeed. Um, how does one make sense of the idea that, that a society could be making a mistake? Look, I'm not an ethicist, so I'm just sort of, I'm just sort of winging it here, but I'm not sure that you can, <laughs> that, 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 uh, you can reason people into having the right eti- ethical attitudes. I mean, it's it's a matter of it's a matter of you know, what kind of person you want to be and how you want to live in the world and how you want to relate to the to, to the people around you. You know, um, and I don't think I can reason someone into saying that they should care about factory farming. I mean, I can point out lots of things you know, about the, the similarities between the animals and the things that they themselves experience. But if they don't care about that, I don't see that I can make them care. It seems to me that the the problem, the ethical problem isn't about trying to identify what re- what matters. It's trying to get people to care about what matters. Um, we kind of all have a pretty good grasp on the things that, are, that matter and don't matter. Mm-hmm. Um, but some people care less than others. Um, if you could point to, to certain um, things in the world and say, look, it's in a state that is intrinsically bad, labeled by the universe, as, as Finn said, well, still, I, I mean, someone might say, well, I don't, don't care that it's been labeled by the universe. And I don't know what you could say to them about that then. You know, they say, I don't care what the universe has labeled it. It's, you, you've got to care. You, and caring isn't a matter of I don't think having a certain set of beliefs, it's a matter of living in a certain, being a certain person. I, I'm a, I'm a virtual ethicist. I mean, I'll fess up, I suppose. And, uh, you know, but I think a virtuous person probably would have a certain amount of concern for things like the, uh, the robot dogs if they, um, that was going to be my question is how, so how do the virtues guide us as we enter this world of things that don't share ancestry with us? And not that that matters, but I'm just saying, because they don't share ancestry with us, they, you know, on all these multi-dimensional measures, probably are going to disaggregate all sorts of complicated things. Be very yeah. complex in some ways, but simple in other ways. Have mm-hmm. different sensory modalities. Have yeah, absolutely different reactions, different ways of being in the world. Um, how, how do we how do we navigate that virtuously? The the virtuous approach to digital minds. How do we do it? We, uh, I guess trial and error we just we just try and we, we have to live it through i don't think there's there's like a cheat sheet um <laughs> that you know can tell us how to do it i don't think there are any sets of principles that can tell us how to do it. we've got to find a way of living in the world that we feel happy with that we can that we're comfortable with well what if that starts to fractionate what if different groups of us feel comfortable with different things i don't know there isn't this is messy this is horrible this is part of you know being a being self-aware creature um, that we you know, we reflect on how we should live in the world and how we should react, and, and we have a we have a you know, evolution has given us a good deal of freedom. Um, it is not you know it's hardwired a lot of stuff into us, but it's also made us reflective and made us able to second guess ourselves and to worry about whether we're doing things right. It's it's going to it's going to be really messy and 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 I'll tell you okay something here that does worry me. Um, I suspect that once we do get pretty pretty complex. AIs, and actually, I think it's going to be a long time before we get anything that's that's really um, a really serious candidate for the sort of ethical concern that we give uh, even to um, even to to, to 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 other mammals. Um, uh, but once we do get those sort of creatures, I think there are going to be people who will say, "I don't care how 
complex and sensitive it is and what how rich its psychology is. It's just a piece of machinery and we can do what we want to it. Because they have this conception of, you know, the inner light conception of consciousness and they, they can't believe that the inner lights are on in this thing that's not in this non-biological thing. And they're going to say, we can just treat them as we want. I think that's a good, that's, I don't think that's a good line. I think it's, I'd much rather be guided by, um, um, yeah, my, my gut feeling about these things. I mean, gut feeling based on a good deal of interaction with them and, uh, you know, fairly uh, complex understanding of what they're capable of than, uh, than on some uh, abstract theoretical principle like that. Yeah, well, I think uh, I would say that famously this is not the kind of conversation that often resolves itself in agreement and clarity. But the thing I wanted to say is that when it comes to thinking about what kinds of things matter... Um, you said, well, the best we can do is play this game of reaching some kind mm. of mutual agreement. It's a real social mm. process. And I want to say, well, to a first approximation, we're in this world where we're industrially farming animals. And most people are fine with that. And I think that's very bad. And um, it's not made better by the fact that people agree it's, uh, for the most part, that it's okay. And ditto for, you know, historical wrongs um and i just don't know what to do with that in light of everything else you've said but in some sense I, i'm kind of happy to leave leave the conversation dangling on that kind of unresolved note when i talked about sort of establishing a sort of equilibrium i didn't mean that you know we, we just sort of settle and content with that i mean sure, it's, sure. it's an evolving process and it's very important that there are people who are continually pushing and you know um the, the, the tensions within a particular picture and you know they resolve themselves and we, we move on and it you know it's 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 a dynamic thing and that's mm. very important that it should be and yeah i mean i i'm certainly in terms of uh, um, factory harming i think we, we should be absolutely pushing out here and i don't see there's anything in illusionism that that would deny that um uh, it's uh, there's all sorts of considerations you could appeal to this they're not living a a, a life uh, they're not thriving by any conception of what thriving is and you know you don't need to have any sort of story about consciousness to see that these mm. creatures aren't thriving and if you think well they, you know and of course somebody can say well i don't care if they thrive well if you don't care if they thrive fine you don't care but well, not fine but you know well i can't say much to you but the fact that they're not thriving seems to me a good a good reason for not doing it yeah i wanted to ask this question about whether we should expect especially advanced ai systems to begin getting the same kind of problem intuitions that people have about consciousness right so people tend to think as we've discussed or at least many people tend to think that this thing called consciousness has all these weird features. They think it's maybe kind of mysterious or raises really hard to answer questions. I suppose that might be because it's just a very like contingent feature of the way we've grown up over our evolutionary history that we're in this place where we all kind of share these strange opinions about our own minds. Or maybe this kind of illusion of consciousness or phenomenal consciousness in particular is a kind of attractor state in the you know the space of possible minds and maybe if we just kind of let the whole process go naturally we just get more and more powerful ai systems we should just expect them to reach the same kind of opinions about the fact that they they themselves are, are conscious so i don't know if you have any way of beginning to think about which way you're likely to go dan Dennett and i have been um working on a little project of uh, of Imagine building an autonomous uh, uh, robot, 
um, starting with with a say something like an exoskeleton that is that is um, actually you know that is worn by a by a person, then gradually taking the person out of the out of the suit and first of all having them connected by uh, sensors and and effectors in the suit, and then gradually replacing functions uh, uh, that were performed by the the the, the human operator by uh, by, aut- by autonomous systems and seeing what the thing needs what the robot needs in order to to, to carry out whatever whatever tasks that we're, it's facing uh, and to see t- to what extent there's a need for something like a sense of say uh, free will and phenomenal consciousness to see what extent these this uh i'm just exactly say emerges because i don't like talk of emergence but to see what, what sense these this, this comes naturally as a consequence of uh, of other capacities that we've equipped it with. Um, I'm inclined to think that I'm inclined to think something like this. That uh, what's really going to be the driver of this is um, uh, social uh, social consider- considerations. When, when you get a, mm. a community, say you get a community of autonomous uh, agents together who have you know pretty rich kinds of 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 um, sensory uh, awareness of their environment and can use this sensory information in you know, really to kind of really rich range of behaviors and so have complex uh, reactions um, to to sensory information and you make these creatures social creatures who share information with each other they're going to have one very important source of information about their environment um, which it will be useful for them to share. And that's information about how things in their environment affect them. So, uh, you know, this, this, this thing, when you, taste, when you taste it, it produces this kind of complex reaction. This other thing, uh, if you touch it, you know, if you touch it, it puts another kind of very complex reaction. Um, now, they don't need to communicate all the details of that complex pattern of reactions, but they need to say whether it's kind of good or bad, um, and kind of what sort of region it is, you know, is it a sort of, complex um uh is it a sort of reaction that allows you find sort of fine-grained kinds of motor control like a visual one or is it a reaction that that, that allows certain other kinds of reactions they're going to need to have some crude but convenient way of packaging up information about how different aspects of the world affect them mm-hmm. and one way of doing this is to say how it feels so you know they'll say well that feels bad don't do that Meaning, it has a cluster of reactions that the, the reactions that it produces are ones that are a negative one that I, that I regard as negative, mm-hmm. um, and then they will be able to sort of nuance this in different ways, and maybe they they will have these ideas of something like quality spaces where um, where different kinds of stimulus stimuli are related to each other in different systematic ways, and other ones occupy a different sort of um, space of relations and so on. So they get different ideas of different sensory modalities and so on. So if that's right, and this information is very useful, um, then it would be natural for them to develop um, uh, uh, the sort of um, uh, mental uh, picture that we have. And also, as, as, as Dennett stresses, it may be important also for the, uh, to conceal information. So they're going to have this sense of that they're tracking something that only they really know about. You know that it's this is this is my private take on this, and I don't have to tell you about. It. If they just printed out everything that, that that occurred to them, that would be that that could be quite dangerous. Um, they would lose all sorts of opportunities. So they create this idea of sort of curating their own experience and monitoring it, and providing information about some of it and withholding information about other bits. And gradually, they 
have this idea that they're what they're really in contact with is this private inner world uh, through which the outer world is sort of filtered for them. Um, so yeah, I wanted to talk about Twitter. <laughs> so, um, Keith, uh, apologies for pouring on the the flattery, but like I I just really enjoy your Twitter feed. Like whenever I check it you're having some like really interesting conversation with someone or you're kind of wondering aloud about something you've been researching in a, in a very interesting way. And, you know, it's news to no one that that's not the norm for Twitter. Uh, Twitter can attract bad conversation and anger. I I never really see any of that uh, associated with your account or even like close to it. Yeah. What are your motivations for using Twitter the way that you do? Do you find it Mm. useful for philosophical conversation? Yes, I do. And I started using it when we, when we came here to Greece. I felt a bit cut off. Um, so I started using it to chat with people in philosophy back in, uh, in the UK. And uh, I use it partially just as a way of socializing, just of having, you know, just the sort of conversations you would have. You know, how I, you know, when I was, you know, working at the OU, you know, you'd, I'd just go along to somebody's office and I'd just stand in the doorway and I'd say, did you read that? Did you read that piece the other day? Or what did you think about that? And they'd say, oh, yeah, I don't know. I'll just go away. Um, and um, so I, I always used to like just chatting with people idly. And I particularly like this because when I try to write, I try to write really carefully. And when I write an article, I, I, it's, I, I really want to be very, very precise in what I say. And I, I need some channel where I can just sort of just extemporize and just talk without worrying too much about getting it exactly right and so on. And this, this chatting, I, I like. Doing it. So I, I, that, that, that was what I started doing, and I also just, just jokes and just and I, that, that's how, that's how I use it. I use it as I, 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 what I think the key to it. I think is to think of yourself as talking to real people. This is something you're saying to a real person who could be just in front of you now, just you know, in the office next door. Um, I don't think people use it as that. They kind of, I think they often they're often arguing with with. Um, with kind of fictional characters they've created out of out of a bunch of tweets they've they've these these you know these little bullet pointed tweets and they've created this idea of this of this monstrous person who has these terrible views on the basis of these few things they've said and so they they go and attack this this you know, sort of Don Quixote style way you know they go tilting up this at this um, sort of windmill thing that they've created and uh, and then of course the other person does the same back so that's what I would say I would say if you want to make use of Twitter find people you like. Talk to them as, you, as if they were there in front of you face to face. And uh, just don't engage in argument because even if the cause that you're arguing for is a good one, you're really not going to achieve anything on Twitter. You're more likely to simply antagonize the other person and make them more entrenched in their the view they started with. I mean, it's a tool. Let's use it creatively and constructively. Uh, it's it's a way in which we can all be friends. I like. It's funny because you you do argue on Twitter, Keith, but in a friendly way. Like, so, like, I don't mean you fight with people. You don't bicker with people. But yeah, yeah. you know, I'll see you in the replies if someone's talking about the phenomenal <laughs> concept strategy. You'll know you'll be in there, like pressing the case. Yeah. No, when I said argue, I meant don't fight. I mean, don't don't abuse. Don't. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, argue rational argument. Yeah, absolutely. In that fun way that you can do in a philosophy department. Yeah, as you would do with somebody who you'd, you'd see face-to-face. Don't say anything to somebody on Twitter that you wouldn't say to them face-to-face. Uh, and interestingly, often, you know, I've, when I've met people who I've um, 
communicated within Twitter, they're often quite different from, from what you imagine them to be. Uh, and they're always more complex than you imagine them to be because people are very, very complex. And yes, they may have said something that you think is outrageous, and it may be outrageous, but that doesn't define them as a person. People are complex and are always richer and more interesting um, than uh, than your interpretation of them. Wise words, indeed. <laughs> um, it's funny, people often complain that Twitter is a kind of cesspit of you know rage and vitriol and i'm sure lots of it is but i'm always a bit confused that they maybe they haven't discovered that you can just curate who you follow. it's a wonderful thing it's a wonderful way of communicating but, but again it's what you make of it i don't know i think some people just enjoy uh, abusing, abusing yeah that might be the explanation um okay so we have some questions which we ask all i guess at the end of interviews and um one of them is which three books uh, would you recommend for someone who is listening to this and wants to either learn more um, about the things we've talked about or maybe things which actually just influenced you when you were working on all this stuff? Well, I'm going to say some obvious things. I mean, if you've not read read Daniel Dennett's work on this, you've got to read it. Um, uh, so Consciousness Explained and uh, Sweet Dreams, yeah. which is a lovely little book. It's a sort of follow-up to Consciousness Explained. You're probably better to read Consciousness Explained first, but Sweet Dreams takes some of it off in wonderful, um, in wonderful mm. directions. It's a lovely little book. Um, and I think some people misunderstand what Dennett's doing. He's not providing rigorous arguments he's trying to get you to, well that's not unrigorous but he's not formulating this as a series of, of premises and conclusions he's he's trying to get you to look to do this reconceptualization to do this kind of aspect shift on consciousness to see it from a different perspective and you and this is why he uses metaphors and uh, thought experiments and, and so on. you've got and you've got to go along with it you've got to go with it you've got to let him take you to show you the view he wants to show you I mean, you may not like the view if you don't, you know, fine. No, but let him take you there. Go with him. Don't say, oh, this, is, this, this isn't about really, really about consciousness because consciousness is this. Yeah, he knows that you think that. Um, he's trying to show you another way of looking at it. Go with it. Try and inhabit the view. When, I, whenever I, I reread um, either of those books, I find myself seeing more and more of, um, of the picture. And uh, I think they're mm. wonderful books. So, yeah, read those. Of course, I, I would also suggest you read Nicholas Humphrey's book, um, Sold Us, from 2011, which is, a, I think that today um, Humphrey doesn't, he doesn't like the label illusionism so much, but the position is, is very illusionist. Um, and it's a wonderful one about how this conception of consciousness as a, as a private subjective world is, is, is an adaptive one about the one wonderful effects, um, right, how it enriches our lives and our, what's great, what, what, what I really like about Nick Humphrey's work is that it's, um, he's got a really rich background. I mean, he's a psychologist, but uh, his background in neuroscience, he's, he knows a good deal of philosophy. He's also really widely read in arts and um, uh, literature and um, quotes mystics and poets. And it's, and this, this is what you need to talk about consciousness. You need this rich, um, this rich um, background of experience. Uh, 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 and Nick has this, and it's a wonderful little book. Um, mm. He's got a new book coming out soon on um, about animal consciousness, which is extending the picture. And uh, I think that would be very relevant to um, to the sort to, to the people who are listening to um, to the interests of the people who are listening to this podcast. So I really encourage you to to have a look at his his work. 
So that's that's two. Um, if you want to know more about my views, you could have a look at this series of YouTube videos that I, um, YouTube lectures that I recorded mm. last year for the Moscow Center for Consciousness Studies. They're, they're on my YouTube channel, um, <laughs> something like 12 hours of them. And so you can sit and... <laughs> Do a marathon. And hear me yeah. and, um, ramble about consciousness uh, to your heart's content. Um, oh, look, also, you know, read some David Chalmers. I mean, read The Conscious Mind, because in many ways... Um, You've got to know the enemy. Well, I, I, you know, I, 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 I agree with Dave on a lot. I agree on the whole way that he sets it up at the beginning, you know, the whole sort of um, um, what would have to be true, you know, to have a, to have a, 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 a reductive theory of consciousness. I, you know, I agree on all of this. Um, and, and I, I mean, you know, Dave is himself fairly similar. I mean, he, he outlines an illusionist position in that book. Um, and he wrote this big paper about yeah. the meta problem, more or less introducing yeah. it. And I feel like if I'm remembering it right, he says this thing at the end to the effect of, well, if it wasn't for this, in my opinion, quite difficult to understand view of his, which kind of is a realism which fits with the meta problem, then I would be an illusionist. Yes. Yeah, and he admits at the end that the that in terms of the dialectic, the the illusionist has more to say because all, in the end, all the realists can do is keep thumping the table and say, yes, but the qualia are real, mm. damn it. And the illusionist can say, I know, I know, I know you think that the qualia are real and I can explain why you think that the qualia are real and why you're banging the table. And, you know, the, the, the realist says, yes, I know you can explain why I'm banging the table and why I'm doing that, but they're still real. Right, right. <laughs> so it's, um, it's, I, I think he appreciate. I think he probably understands the illusionist position um, better than the, well, as well as anyone. And uh, maybe there, maybe there's a fairly close possible world in which he is an illusionist. Interesting. Maybe, maybe there's still. <laughs> um, okay. Last question is: It might be the case that some listeners are in fact in a position to do useful or interesting work on some of the things you've talked about. Um, are there specific questions or areas that you're really excited to see progress on from the philosophical side or from the empirical side as well? You know, I, I read, um, you know, Dave Chalmers' paper on the meta problem is, is, is a good start mm -hmm. to, 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 to mapping out some of this stuff. There's, there's a lot of XFI stuff to be done. How, uh, how widespread are these uh, intuitions about uh, mm. about about uh, consciousness uh, is it just you know the, the, the weird the western educated etc people who have these mm. um so uh, you know so there's, there's loads of interesting stuff to do just on trying to work out you know how pervasive these intuitions are and what their source is that's the really interesting what's the source of these in is it just um <laughs> is it just at the one extreme just bad philosophy at the other end is it some, some sort of hardwired subpersonal introspective processes that produce these beliefs and i think there's a whole mm. spectrum of position and probably some dimensions to it as well. I talk about this in some of the lectures that I, one of the lectures that I mentioned. So there's a load of interesting stuff to do. And then, then you get into substantive theorizing about, you know, the, the, the nature of first order consciousness itself and the nature of our introspective access to those processes that causes our, um, our, uh, 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 our metaproblem intuitions. I think there's bound to be some, there must be some uh, uh, sort of, uh, 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 psychological story to tell there about the process involved, even if it's overlaid heavily with cultural um, stuff. 
And as I said, there's also this wider project of, of trying to, broader project of trying to, to sort of tease people out of the Cartesian sort of way of thinking of this. Make the world safe for illusionism. <laughs> or make the, not so much make it safe, make the world open to illusionism. Don't write illusionism off. That's, that's my main uh, objective at the moment. But there are lots and lots of projects within this. Um, I mean, Things like change blindness and things, how studies of change blindness help to undermine intuitions about consciousness mm -hmm. and tell us something about the nature of our uh, reports on consciousness. I mean, or, or, things, uh, or think about looking at um, measures of consciousness. This is in, in very interesting stuff. On, um, I, I mentioned Liz Irving, Irving's work here. That, um, how do you measure consciousness? How do you decide whether the lights are on or off in the, in, if you have that picture? And there are all kinds of different sorts of ways you might do this. And, uh, you know, uh, asking people is one way, but the, the many other um, uh, uh, indications, both voluntary and involuntary. And they don't all produce the same results. That's the point. They don't all give the same verdict. What does that tell you about the nature of the process, both about the nature of the processes you're investigating, the first order processes, and about the introspective processes that, that generate the, the um, at least the reports? It, it's not picking it all apart. But what you should stop doing, I think, is looking for the correlates of the inner lights coming on, because that's 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 a dead end. Okay. Final final question is: Where can people find you or the things you've made online? Um, well, as you said, they can find me on Twitter, which is at Keith Frankish, um, all one word, and they can find me on my website, which is Keith Frankish, all written as one word. Com. And there's a lot of stuff on there, which I'm currently in the process of updating. It's a bit out of date, but I'm putting my new stuff up there. And there's, there's, some, there's, there's a lot of um, uh, uh, print, reprints of papers and um, various other stuff, and some limericks as well, um, some philosophical limericks and a, a couple of, of uh, uh, rude ones. And we will link to all of those things, limericks included, uh, in the show notes and on the website and so on. Keith Frankish, thank you very much. Thanks, Keith. Yeah, thank you. It's been a great pleasure. And guest interviewer Rob Long, thank you. Thanks for having me. It was a delight. That was Keith Frankish on Illusionism About Consciousness. As always, if you'd like to learn more, you can read the write-up at hearthisidea.com forward slash episodes forward slash Keith. They will find links to all the books and resources that were mentioned, along with some further reading. As always, it would be great if you could leave an honest review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening to this. If you have constructive feedback, there is a link on the website to an anonymous feedback form. Uh, there's also a star rating form on the top and the bottom of the write-up. And you can send suggestions, questions and whatever else to feedback at hearthisidea.com. Uh, in particular, we'd love to hear how you think the guest interviewer format went and whether we should experiment with that more in the future. Finally, if you would like to support the show more directly, you can also leave a tip by following the link in the show notes. Thanks very much for listening.